What's up, guys? Doug Polk here, and welcome back for another episode of the Doug Polk Podcast. Today, we are joined by the founder and editor and uh, editor and chief of 538, Nate Silver, will be joining us. Lots to talk about World Series of Poker, his recent foray back into the world of poker, and maybe we can even get a little bit of political betting information out of him. We'll see what we can do. But before we do that, I want to quickly talk about uh, upcoming guests on the podcast. On Thursday, we're going to be joined by Brian Mikon founder of seals with clubs so always good to talk to him been a few years since he was on the podcast and then friday we are tentatively scheduled to have norman chad on as well uh someone that i think a lot of poker fans will be happy to see and also if you missed it last week mike massow came on had a lot to say laid it all on the table great honest conversation with mike i'd recommend checking that out as well okay with those things out of the way i'd now like to introduce today's guest nate silver thank you for joining us hey doug how are you man I'm good. I'm good. Thank you for taking the time to come on today. Uh, we've got a full schedule of things to talk about. But before we jump into that, I want to quickly ask you, um, in 2016, 538 gave Clinton a 71% chance to win, but she actually lost. So I assume yeah. there's, an, there's an apology somewhere, <laughs> right? Where can I direct the audience to, to see your apology about that? I mean, I don't know why everyone is even listening about yeah, listening about anything at all after, after a 29% chance came through, the flush draw came through. I mean, the thing that like, most pisses me off about it is I kind of think like a poker player, or like an investor, right? Where the most important thing is not the number, but where you are relative to the market, right? Um, so if the market had Clinton at 85% or 90%, um, and we had her at 70% and Trump at 30%, then I know people made a lot of money betting on Trump um, based on our projections, right? But like, that's not kind of how like people in politics land think necessarily, even though we spent like a lot of time kind of pointing and saying, hey, look, Trump really has a chance, right? Because you could have said, yeah, he has a chance, but Clinton's probably going to win, right? We really tried to emphasize the message that like a 30% chance is a very, very real thing. Um, but people don't really, people don't really like to listen. They like to get mad at people when things that they don't like happen and like, and like, yeah. So that was one of a long history of annoying experiences in, in covering politics. I think any professional gambler knows that if you get your money in at uh, you know a seventy-one percent chance to win. That's like having ace five suited versus ace king or something like that. With the twenty, it's the ace five suited. It's it, it happens a lot. It's not that rare, and it is funny seeing sort of the the general population look at that and say he he was wrong. No, twenty nine percent of the time happens a lot more than you would think, and I think that gamblers are probably most equipped to be able to, you know, understand that and, and realize it. Um, just a couple, a quick note here on on political betting markets, just in general. Um, what what do you think about the efficiency of political betting markets? Obviously, kind of when you first made your name for yourself, you predicted yeah. every state right in what was it two thousand? Wait, what what year? Two thousand eight. Yeah. Okay, so two thousand eight. Is it fair to say that the markets have gotten more efficient, uh, with the exception being betting on Trump after the election? Is it fair to say that they have become more efficient? I don't think so, because I think people have gotten kind of less grounded in reality. Um, and the amount of betting that took place on Trump after the election is kind of proof positive of that, right? Um, and there's some ambiguity about how the different contracts were written and about different, like, electoral college deadlines and so forth. But, like, you know, I'm, I know people who made millions of dollars betting on Biden when he basically already won, right? Um, it was pretty insane. And I think kind of reflects the fact that like people are are not being as rational as we might want them to be. Um, part of that, I think, is because like you can't really make a living um, 
betting on political betting markets because the, the events are too irregular, right? Um, you might have a fantastic opportunity once every two to four years or maybe slightly more often um, if you're also betting international markets like Brexit or whatnot, right? Um, but you don't really have a kind of professional class of people who um, who actually have that skill set like you might have in sports betting or in poker, for example. Um, so you have kind of various amateurs, some of whom are poker players or gamblers or investors, um, some of whom have pretty good instincts for politics, some of whom don't, but like, but it doesn't make the market necessarily clear and be all that efficient, I don't think. Um, it's kind of the same way for like, you know, like a big MMA fight or something like featuring like Conor McGregor or maybe like the Super Bowl or something, right? Even though in general, it's very, very hard to beat like um, sports handicapping markets, right? There may be exceptions. There's a lot of public money on outcome. People have a personal interest in the outcome. Um, and they're kind of these one-off things that happen every now and then where the market is is not that efficient. It's interesting you bring up sports betting. I, I actually wanted to ask you about that because uh, I, I love 538. I, I love a lot of the sports stuff. I'm a big sports fan of myself. So I, I love going on there and seeing all the different the different predictions and graphs and charts. And the infographics are always amazing. What are your thoughts on sports specifically? Because one thing that I see a lot of, if you go to 538, you'll see gaps between what 538 will be predicting and what the betting market will be. If yeah. that if that's correct, then you could just pile the 538 line indefinitely. Is the 530, are the five, is the information on 538 sort of profitable versus the books? Or can, how can you explain this gap between it, the 538 modeling and, and the sports books? It depends on the sport. Um, for the NFL, for example, we just use kind of very simple, basic stuff like an ELO rating with an adjustment for quarterbacks and, and travel, right? Um, that might be kind of what a sports book does when it sets the line on Monday of NFL week, right? It's a good opening line um, that accounts for a lot of the more important stuff, but it's not very granular, is not considering injuries, for example, it's not considering all the things that would give you your edge basically. Right. So it's kind of like, you know, we might be 50 or 51% against the lines, but I don't think you're making money off our relatively simple models like, like football. Um, I think our basketball stuff is pretty sharp. It has a pretty good record against season over underlines. Um, I think our soccer stuff is decent. We have a lot of different, you know, we have very uh, deep coverage of soccer, so probably not for the most uh, liquid markets, but maybe some of the others it might be okay. But like, we're not necessarily trying to like um, tout ourselves as being something that you can beat the books with. In part because people can look at those lines and like adjust accordingly, right? So again, oh, okay. people already have already have like kind of the NFL ELO model kind of baked into like the opening line at wherever you're betting, right? And so they can add information on top of that. And sometimes people probably are you know, dumb enough to actually add negative <laughs> value on those lines that can happen in politics, for example. But no, I don't think we'd say that like, um, again, with the exception of the NBA, where we're, we really invest a lot of time in kind of using next generation metrics. And I think figured some stuff out that maybe the average person isn't accounting for, you know, but even there you want to like, like pick and choose a little bit, right? Because one thing people will say is I want to look at every line on 538 and compare how it did against the actual, you know, closing lines in Vegas, right? There are a lot of times when the line is different because I know that like um, our intern didn't account for the fact that like Trey Young got hurt in pregame warmups or something, right? And so you'd never bet up that, that, bet that line. But like, if you're kind of picking and choosing and saying, okay, here is an opportunity. Here is why my line differs from Las Vegas. Um, and as like a hypothesis to study further, 
then it can kind of guide you to some profitable bets, right? But you wouldn't, I think, blindly ever bet um, any, you know, any algorithm. You should never, I don't think, ever bet completely blindly unless unless the market's, you know, very, very soft, right? I think you kind of aggregate different information together um, and look at kind of the story, understand the reasons for why the market is telling you something. And then, and then maybe you make um, a modest profit, um, but, but no one is saying that it's easy for sure. Do you think that the 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 basically the information that you put up on five thirty eight impacts betting markets, both sports and or political ones? Do you think that it actually changes the line? Um, I don't think for sports markets really. Again, you know, maybe a little bit with the NBA. I you know, like a lot of NBA teams look at our stuff, and so you know, it's not people who are setting markets. For example, in in Las Vegas, um, for politics, for sure. Um, and in fact, I think there was some evidence that we even would affect like the stock market <laughs> in 2016, for example, where there was a you know tick on their Trumpers Clinton line, it would affect a certain basket of stocks or something. Um, which is why, by the way, I don't like bet on um, on politics because we are market makers, I think, right, or at least market moving, right? In politics, if I'm at um, the win or something, I'm happy to like drop a little bit on an NBA game because I'm like bored on a Friday night or something, right? Um, but I wouldn't do that in politics because I think it, it runs into all types of ethical issues for sure. You could front run information and and it would be pretty bad. It'd be not cool. It would not, but it, it also speaks to the fact that like these markets aren't very liquid, although, although even in sports, right? I mean, there are individual, I was like, you know, shadowing a sports better who is anonymous for now for the book, right? And like he placed a bet on some MMA fight when I was, you know, at his place. And I saw like the line shifted instantly in response to his bet, right? So people who are sharp um, can move the lines, right? Even in markets as liquid as sports. Um, But in politics, like um, there are really like only a handful of people who really know how to build the right kind of model, right? Then there are probably more people who understand how to like filter other people's information in kind of a secondhand way and have a sense for kind of which information is more reliable and which isn't. Um, but like political betting markets are hard because you have all these kind of semi-correlated outcomes, right? Every state is not independent of one another where you have, in fact, like they're highly correlated. If you win Wisconsin, they probably win Michigan too, for example. Um, so it actually becomes like a pretty tricky thing to, to model empirically. Something like the presidential primaries are even trickier. It's very nonlinear. Um, so, so yeah, yeah. It, it's easy to build a bad model and hard to build a good model. And when there's that, there's that Delta between those is kind of when I think there can be a lot of dumb money in, in markets potentially. T- 2020 was really interesting in the primaries specifically with regards to how low Biden's chance to win got before he had the surge. I think he got down to something like roughly 8% to win the primary or so before the South Carolina primary. And then obviously ended up winning the primary and ended up winning the general as well. Um, so I think like that's an example of a spot where you can see how inefficient the market is that they're giving him such a low percent chance, especially with how it seems like the tides can kind of turn in these things. A candidate starts winning. People view them differently. Oh, this guy's a winner. Oh, he's on a roll. Oh, you know what? Actually, maybe he, whatever kind of narrative that can kind of build around them. And I think that maybe maybe some of these markets way over, you know, if we go if we go macro view, Biden was the front runner at the start. He won. Mm-hmm. Right. So if you just stepped all the way outside and looked at that, then you could say, okay, this seemed 
like it was fairly at least somewhat accurate if the most likely to win candidate ended up winning. But then when you look at the swings day to day, maybe people overvalue what's happening in, in, a, in a smaller context. Could do you, do you think there's any element of truth to that? Yeah, for sure. And like their primary is tricky because you have short term momentum swings um, and trying to like model this mathematically is kind of interesting. Right. Um, but if you win a state, you kind of, it's almost like a video game where you get like an attribute boost for like a certain period of time, but then it wears off. Right. Um, so the timing is very important, right? Biden gets this big attribute boost after winning South Carolina, which is always a fairly predictable outcome that he would win South Carolina, right? Cause Bernie Buttigieg, they were not very good South Carolina candidates for various reasons. Right. Um, one week after South Carolina, you have like all these different States vote, you have super Tuesday, and then you have a whole bunch of important States vote the week after that. Um, so the scenario where Biden wins South Carolina the momentum changes and then he kind of sweeps all those other states. And then all of a sudden half the delegates are chosen and he's way ahead. Like um, it was not obvious that would happen, but there's always a pretty decent shot, which is, I think our model kind of had Biden no lower than 25% or whatever. Um, so, so yeah. And I mean, but that that's a case of like actually having to understand how the system works. Right. Cause you should some like naive, like here's delegates right now and here's the polls right now. Right. Maybe you would have had Biden pretty low, although even then he was still second place in the polls. Um, but like understanding the actual underlying mathematics of like how the primary works um, or to understand the underlying dynamics and figuring out how to represent those mathematically. Like there's a lot of value in that relative to like some some kind of naive interpretation. I feel that the system is not super fair, more so in the Democratic primary than the Republican one with the number of superdelegates that are involved and the way that that ends up favoring certain candidates and, and working against candidates like Bernie. And I think you see a lot of people that feel it's rigged. They're making it so my guy can't win. It's, you know, the system is, 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 is rigged against us. Uh, a lot of that over the last few years. What are your thoughts on the system itself? Do you, do you think that it's fair? I mean, just from looking at this, it seems, why do we have the super, these super delegates at all? The fact that it doesn't bind you to the winner of the state and it has to go to a convention. A lot of these things seem sort of, are archaic and need to be updated or fixed. Not that I think that that's very possible. So Democrats got rid of the super delegates delegates after 2016 or not entirely. Yeah. Well, what they did is they said they only get a vote if there's a deadlock on the first ballot, right? Meaning if no one gets 50%, then they come in and then they can serve as like the tiebreaker. Um, Although also people who are non super delegates can also change their vote at that point. Right. So that's a, I think a fairly rational system. I mean, I agree that like, the 2016 system was a little bit weird, right? Um, where it's like kind of like not pure democracy. It's like kind of 75% democracy and 25% kind of, you know, the old system of like smoke-filled rooms. But it's inherited from an era where there didn't used to be presidential primaries at all, right? Then there were some, but they were so-called beauty contests, meaning you would just kind of like um, have a vote to advise elites how to decide, right? Um, so kind of the evolution now to them actually being disempowered except in the case of a tie um, or, a, or a deadlock is, is pretty new. It took from like 1972 when the first primaries kind of were invented to 2020 for that change to occur. Um, the GOP is a little bit more freewheeling. Um, you know, it kind of follows from the party uh, standards where Democrats want things that are uniform between states, right? The GOP believes in kind of states, right? So for the GOP, some states are winner take all. Some states um, are proportional, some states, there's no primary at all, right? And different rules govern how the superdelegates behave in different states in the GOP. So that's a bit more kind of freeform. Um, 
But no, I mean, I think in principle, I agree that um, that voters should decide who the nominees are, right? I think in practice, you kind of run into the problem where, um, where you know, as polarization increases, it can empower parties to nominate more extreme candidates, whereas kind of the elites, in theory, will pick candidates that have more of a shot in the general election and are more moderate. So if you think moderation is a good thing, you might actually want to empower <laughs> elites. But like, I understand what people feel as though like, okay, you have the 2016 primary, you started with Hillary having 200 delegates for nothing, basically, right? I understand why people feel like that was not a great system. And I and Democrats did do away with that for 2020. Uh, so I, I think that the increased polarization of the country is, uh, it, it, it's a, I, would, I feel like it is a problem because if you look back at politics 20, 30 years ago, 40 years ago, I remember seeing the infographic that shows sort of the polarization of the parties and where they overlap. And the peaks of the two curves were actually pretty close together. The average Republican, the average Democrat wasn't that different 40, 50 years ago, whereas now they're very far apart uh, on on the majority of issues. And that gap seems to be widening seems to be widening do you worry about sort of the future where that takes politics if we continue to get into this hyper hyper uh polarized environment where people are just have to be all in on one side or the other if you have any kind of moderate take you're sort of the enemy and by the way i think you specifically (laughs) end up getting owned because of that and where you're trying to be rational and grounded and here are the facts and here's my take given the facts and then what happens is you think oh both sides might like me a little bit. No, they both hate you because they're both, <laughs> you're not backing my guy. You're not yeah. saying what I need to say. So, so where does that kind of put us in politics moving forward? Do you see things getting less polarized anytime soon? Or, or do you think it's only going to get worse from here? No, I think it takes us to a pretty dark place, right? Cause there are a lot of problems to solve. Um, we can talk about kind of COVID later and kind of the, some of the partisan responses to COVID that I think are pretty crazy. Um, you know, I am pretty worried about, what happens if you have another close election and there's an attempt to um, not respect the results of the election? That's not a both sides issue. That's more on the GOP side that I worry about that. Right. Um, I worry about the response to um, climate change, which is not to say that the response is obvious, um, but it probably requires a considered response, um, you know, and partnership is the kind of not very helpful with that. Um, I mean, and also just kind of like people's like, quality of life, right? To like always be at like one another's throats all the time to like polarize our kind of like social groups along political lines, um, just kind of always be like angry (laughs) all the time. And I think social media platforms kind of encourage that. I mean, it kind of is a fairly miserable existence, I think, in in some ways. Um, And it's kind of the combination of like, and they're all kind of self-reinforcing, right? It's like partisanship is increasing. Um, You also have... um, media platforms that are becoming more partisan and that kind of, you know, people understand that if you want to get clicks, like kind of giving them more extreme argument often does pretty well. Um, And then kind of educational polarization now where people are like kind of very divided by um, educational attainment. They're very divided based on kind of where they live. So they're kind of more and more and more in bubbles um, and like not talking to people who disagree with them. Um, So the level of groupthink is very high. Um, if you're someone like me who, um, I mean, we probably have some things in common, Doug. I mean, I think we both kind of like to like poke the hornet's nest a little bit and kind of can't quite resist it sometimes. Right. And we're not necessarily like, Oh, I'm just going to kind of politely kind of carefully kind of find the middle ground between these two arguments on COVID. Right. It's like, no, you kind of are a little bit more provocative sometimes. Um, 
but but no, I think a lot of people are are um, who spend a lot of time in politics are pretty insane. Um, and like I know it sounds like a really kind of immature criticism, but I've been like in politics for like thirteen or fourteen years now or something, right? And like um, and I think it's increasingly like kind of lost touch with reality and kind of lost touch with like kind of the underlying values that the parties are supposed to represent. Um, and people are like trying to actually kind of win an argument instead of like actually be right. If that makes sense. Right. Or figure are, out the truth is a more, is a better way to put it. You're talking about politicians themselves or the media or both. So I think one problem that we have is like, there's increasingly like kind of a correlation between politicians and the media. Right. Um, it used to be kind of back in, the seventies or eighties that kind of being a political reporter was kind of like a working class profession, right? It's like a trade or a craft. Some people are very, very, very skilled at it, obviously. Um, you kind of like learn through like an apprenticeship system and kind of get better that way. Right. Um, and it was kind of like a middle-class to upper middle-class profession. Right. Um, now kind of overwhelmingly uh, newsrooms are kind of powered by people who went to elite, like Ivy league colleges. It still pays like a upper middle-class wage for the most part, not like a, high wage, but like, um, but the people that, that kind of come from the same bubble, um, which is also a bubble that like a lot of kind of like political experts and kind of politicians come from, right? Even like kind of populist Republicans probably come from like, they might have a degree at Harvard or Yale um, and come from kind of like elite circles. And so like, so that there's like not really a kind of, I don't know, I, I think journalists are not really kind of like the voice of the everyday common person as much. Anymore. I think that's fair, especially when you look at platforms like Twitter. I remember seeing this uh, poll, or not poll, but some information on what percentage of Twitter has a liberal skew, and something like 40, of the p- content posted on Twitter, it has a plus 43 Democrat liberal yeah. skew. That's not a very balanced uh, That's not a very balanced or nuanced take, and, and I think when I look at Twitter, and I look at a lot of the stuff that does tend to trend very in a very it's very popular a lot of times it's just extremely left positions that are popular on that platform because the people that are on the right tend to not be there as, as often because they see all of this stuff um and it's hard to kind of be in the middle ground in that environment and i think that's also why a lot of conservative people tend to think that they're being censored on the platform or maybe they are being censored on the platform but that community tends to not be there as much i, I actually do want to bring in COVID here for a moment because i want to kind of talk about how that applies to the world series of poker and sort of their recent rule change you you tweeted saying that you supported the world series of poker's recent change to decide to make the world series of poker vaccinated only uh, as their policy for events so in order to play a world series of poker event you have to be vaccinated what what do you think makes that a good policy and, and why do you support that that decision? I mean, look, I hope that by the time we get to 2022, um, and it's going to be in the summer or the fall of 2022, but like cases are low enough where we don't have to have a policy like that, right? Um, but like the problem is things can like too easily spiral out of control at an event where people are together for five or six weeks. You have contagious disease, right? People are indoors. Poker players are mixed in terms of their kind of like hygiene. There are actually a lot of poker players who are very obsessed with their health, but some who are not, right? Um, it's polarized like, as well. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but like, I'm worried about like, um, what happens if you have like a super spreader event in the middle of the main event or in the middle of the overall festival, right? Um, like number one, a lot of people, some of whom are unvaccinated, get sick, right? Number two, the tournament itself is very disrupted. 
um, in ways that if I happen to have a bad draw where I kind of was at your table, Doug, and you're unvaccinated you, and you get COVID, now I'm like kicked out, right? We have a very kind of um, complicated set of rules that people are going to argue about. Um, number three is that like understanding how the media works, understanding how the media tends to like um, not portray gambling or poker in a, in a positive light, that if you have some story about a super spreader event happening at the World Series of Poker, it's a big black eye for poker. It deters rec players from playing. It might set back live poker for a year or two until kind of COVID um, eventually recedes and becomes endemic, right? And so it's kind of like really mitigating the downside risk from like a health perspective and from like a poker and media perspective. And again, there will be breakthrough cases. Those can happen and they're happening more. Um, However, if I am contagious um, and you have a vaccine, number one, you're less likely to get COVID from me, not 0%, but lower. Number two, if you do get it, you're less likely to spread to a third person. And number three, I think most importantly, you're not going to get severely ill in all likelihood, right? So I can give you COVID. It's not great. Um, but um, but you're not going to wind up in the hospital in all likelihood. If you're a, you know, if you're a non-immunocompromised person with a vaccine, you will very unlikely to wind up with severe COVID. And so it just kind of like dampens things a lot from spreading exponentially and sending the entire tournament series entirely out of control. And again, I understand like, you know, from a selfish point of view, I would tend to think that like the average unvaccinated player is probably um, a bigger fish, right? Uh, maybe not, but like they're at least more gambly. I like playing against gambly players, right? Um, I understand some people might not come. On the flip side though, there are other friends of mine who are saying, I'm going to play now because I feel safer in this environment, right? Even for me, like I was putting together my schedule. Um, the kind of big kind of clusterfucky like weekend events, like the 1,500 tournaments, right? Um, I mean, I was kind of going to maybe skip those and focus on like kind of things that are like a little bit more exclusive. But like now I kind of feel like, okay, um, I just feel like a little bit safer. I also even stuff like just like the disruption of like having to have people be tested, all the time or like having a whole bunch of arguments about how a policy is being enforced. Right. Um, just kind of saying we're kind of implementing this big procedure at the door. If you come in, the risk is not zero, but like a lot safer saves you from having to have a bunch of like, kind of, um, uh, you know, kind of made up on the spot interpretations and regulations later on that can become very iffy, I think. So just a, just a couple of counter arguments to that, and and I don't really actually have a position on this. I think I've heard a lot of different stances, and and I'm not sure what's right. But this is just to register at events, so the 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 rail can still be unvaccinated, and then all of the cash games can still be unvaccinated. So I I don't think this is a situation where now no unvaccinated people aren't even getting in. There will probably be a lot of unvaccinated people there, so you're still going to have some of those concerns. And then. What exactly is the difference on contagiousness between vaccinated and non-vaccinated people? Because I, I guess I'm not up to date on how contagious you are with each. But my understanding was that if you have the vaccine, you're much more safe. Uh, you're much more safe if you get it. But that the actual contagiousness wasn't that different between the two types of people. So taking the latter question first, I think that's a slight misconception based on some kind of media um, freakouts over the Delta variant, right? I mean, first of all. If you're vaccinated, you're, you're a lot less likely to have COVID in the first place, right? Whether it's 10 times as likely or five times or two times is debated now, but like still it's a substantial reduction of likelihood, right? Conditional on being um, having COVID, you're less likely to have symptomatic COVID and symptomatic COVID where you're actually like coughing or sneezing. 
um, does spread at least somewhat easier, maybe a lot easier. Also, although people may have similar um, uh, amounts of like virus, it's not as transmissible. Most of the evidence says, or maybe the new evidence says, if you're if you're uh, vaccinated, right? Um, so you may have some virus, but like your cells are already working to kill it, and therefore it can transmit, but like not as well, and also not for as long. That you kind of clear that virus within a day or two, maybe versus like four or five days of like peak contagiousness, right? So my guess is that um, you're reducing kind of contagiousness by some fairly large factor, maybe by a factor of of three or four or five or 10 or somewhere in that range, right? When you add those different layers together. Um, and again, because it's like multiplicative, right? That applies both when I transmit to you or don't transmit and when you do or don't transmit to the next person at the table, right? So you have like, um, you know, an exponentially increasing disease is a big problem. And if you kind of dampen that down even a little bit, and I think vaccination dampens it down a lot, then then again, you kind of run, or avoid having the same chance of a, um, very widespread outbreak that would disrupt the entire tournament, um, the entire festival, I guess you'd call it, right? Now, it is true that you're going to have people in cash games. I mean, like, you know, uh, Aria and uh, Venetian and Wynn all have poker series at the same time, and I don't know what their vaccination policies will be, right? Um, you know, for me, I mean, I would just kind of, I would just say anyone coming in the Rio at this point has to be vaccinated, right? And again, I hope it doesn't have to be that way for 2022 and beyond, but like, it's an emergency measure um, that allows a poker tournament to be held kind of responsibly, <laughs> I guess, in a way that won't get a bunch of players sick and is kind of healthy for the long-term future of poker, I guess I'd say, right? Um, okay. That, that yeah. makes a lot of sense. I, I think that COVID is going to be around for, for a very long time. I've been skeptical about the the whole it, it's going to go away at some point thing from the beginning because it's just so contagious and all it takes is one new variant and i feel like the most likely outcome of this again not a scientist here uh is that there are just going to be new strains that we end up having to find new vaccinations for or we'll have the 2022 strain we'll have the 2023 strain we'll probably have these different strains uh, as they sort of develop obviously i hope that we get back to a normal non-covid world but that doesn't seem super realistic right now what, what are your thoughts on people so there are a couple players in the poker community that have been very vocal that they're unhappy with with this decision this policy change obviously something around 30 35 40 percent of the country is unvaccinated i think it's closer to 30 but i could be wrong uh so that's a sizable percentage of the population and uh there are a lot of poker players who are not vaccinated that now cannot go to the rio and play i think some of the the stances some of the positions that they've been taking are positions such as what if i've already had it and i already have some kind of natural immunity here yeah. I, there's no point in me getting the vaccine now that i've had it what are your thoughts on on, on stances like that no i agree that if you've had COVID, first of all, you should get vaccinated because you get like basically like super immunity if you have both natural immunity and vaccine induced immunity. Um, so definitely helps, right? But like I agree that if you're kind of like following the science, um, if you have antibodies, then it's probably in the same ballpark whether you got COVID or vaccinations, what the latest studies say potentially, right? Um, so I could support that, I think, at least in, in theory. Um, I mean, I do think like kind of what does the long run look like? I mean, it is pretty hard to predict. I mean, I think a lot of people thought that like um, we would kind of be in the happy zone by now and we're not clearly. Um, there are people out there right now who have neither been vaccinated nor been exposed to the virus, right? Um, 
at some point, frankly, probably before too much longer, there will not be very many of those people left. And so everyone will have like some degree of immune memory from COVID. Um, and at some point, you probably have people who have, you know, been vaccinated and had a breakthrough case, been vaccinated and had a booster shot, been infected twice, right? So the more times that you encounter COVID, the more robust your immune spot response becomes. And so you're going to have, I think, eventually, I mean, pandemics do tend to become endemic and less dangerous. It can take, though, two or three or four years, right, for that process to complete. We're kind of maybe halfway through it right now. Um, so things are, in the big picture, getting better, right? As bad as the current wave is, um, there are only about one-third or a quarter as many deaths as there were in the previous bad phase, right? Um, we'll go kind of, it's like a bouncing ball where like, kind of like it bounces a little bit less every time. Um, so it's going to be frustrating, but like, but we are at, for the time being at one of the peak year periods will probably not be the only peak we have. Right. Um, but the timing is not fantastic for, <laughs> for a tournament. Um, and I'd rather people say that like, okay, when we're in one of these waves, it's relatively bad. Um, that instead of like having lockdowns and shutdowns, that that's when we kind of impose this vaccine pass, right? Maybe it should be a vaccine and or antibody pass. That would be fine with me, right? Um, Probably expensive. Some of the policies I support are like alternatives to shutting things down entirely, which I think a lot of people would do if given the chance, right? Um, so you're going to like punish both vaccinated and unvaccinated people or only unvaccinated people, which I'm kind of okay with because number one, you should get vaccinated, right? Um, and number two, you know, I mean, I'm a kind of big believer in individual rights, but they are complicated in a pandemic where, where you can spread disease to other people too. And so, and so, you know, it's kind of the least worst alternative, I think that does not mean it's ideal. Um, but I think it's better than kind of either canceling the tournament entirely or a free for all where it could like very easily turn into like a clusterfuck or some very kind of complicated set of like testing protocols like the NBA has, right? If you want to have people live in a bubble, I mean, the if you're in the Rio, it's kind of already a bubble, right? If you want to have all poker players in a bubble, uh, no visitors, right? Tests every day, right? No vaccines or masks. We could do that, but it would be like, I think, much more of a deterrent to the average person playing than, than a vaccination policy would be. I don't think many people would, would want to sign up for that. <laughs> that. That doesn't sound like too much fun. No. Uh, well, one last thing before we talk about your, your poker schedule. I want to talk a bit about poker after this, but... Um, as for uh, the COVID, um, COVID measures that sort of infringe on people's freedoms, I've seen you sort of tweeting about nonsensical COVID policies as well. I feel it is hard to find the exact line. And a lot of times government policy, they're just doing things because they think that they should or it'll be popular yeah. with, with their base or sort of you're, you're sort of virtue signaling that you're taking this seriously. And then we end up with policies that are, that are nonsensical. H- how do we sort of strike the balance here between wanting to be safe and protect people, but then also start starting to infringe on people's freedoms past a point where we're not really seeing a lot of return on the actual value of the policy change. I mean, one thing is like being aware that there is a balance, right? Um, Some people like only try to solve one side of the equation and then there's like kind of no limiting principle at all there, right? So saying, okay, we have to apply some type of cost benefit framework or feeling that some type of like moral principles to like help guide us. And like, it's also kind of, ad hoc and arbitrary is kind of, I think the part that kind of pisses me off about it (laughs) so much, right? Like people aren't really kind of thinking through the implications of kind of what this policy or that policy is kind of who it helps or harms. Um, 
what it really means in the long run if we implement a policy for an endemic disease, right? Um, no, it is kind of like, like you were saying, it's about like, we have a problem, we have to have a solution to the problem, so we must do something, right? And when you feel like we must do something, sometimes a very bad solution becomes entrenched potentially. Um, and it's kind of hard to say, hey, look, um, there are costs to imposing restrictions on people associated with one another that are hard to measure, but that are very important, right? People invest a lot of time to be in one another's company, right? Most of the good things in life involve being around other people. People pay a lot of rent to live in big cities, to be around other people and take advantage of like cultural amenities, right? Um, so people's like revealed preferences that actually having like social interaction in person is super important, right? Um, so you can't just kind of like treat that as some rounding error um, and say we're only trying to optimize for minimizing COVID spread. But a lot of people make that mistake, right? Um, a, a lot of like, times under, sorry, a lot of times under the guise of every life matters. So if you, if you're for some policy that could potentially hurt one person, what if it's your kid? What if it's your right. parent? Yeah. And people get really angry about it, but sometimes you have to make decisions that could hurt one person. We can't have however many hundreds of millions of people, 360 million, whatever the population is, and then say, oh, we all are going to just try to save every last person. There's got to be some kind of balance there. No, I mean, like, imagine if we have a society where the sole goal is to optimize the years of life of every person on earth, right? Like that would quickly devolve into a dystopia where we would have like, you know, very constricted diets. We would probably be isolated from one another, right? We might never actually like meet one another and have like a next generation. But like, if you're not, if you're that strict about it, then you would kind of ignore that complication, right? Um, and so like we as a society very often, in fact, in every endeavor in life, right? Take some level of risk, which entails the risk of people getting becoming injured or becoming unhealthy or becoming sick or dying, right? Because there are benefits from having um, more freedom from being around one another more often, right? Um, and when it comes to like setting speed limits or something, right? We like literally strike a balance between those things, right? Um, when it comes to like the flu, then we say, okay, maybe with the flu, definitely stay home if you're sick every now and then, if a school has a really bad flu outbreak, it will close for a couple of weeks, right? I have no problem with when there's a big flu outbreak in a certain city with people wearing masks then, right? Probably not a bad idea. Um, but the thing is with COVID, like when you have the vaccine, so one myth is like COVID is not the flu, right? However, for a vaccinated person, COVID is pretty close to the flu, where the flu is about 10 times less severe than COVID to start out with. But um, a vaccine cuts your risk of severe outcomes by around tenfold, right? So therefore, if you're vaccinated, then the risks are pretty similar. And so people who do things um, for COVID, for vaccinated people, but not for the flu, then there's an inconsistency between like kind of how people are, are treating the same roughly levels of risk. Um, or for kids, for example, right? Um, fortunately for kids, um, COVID does not very often result in severe complications. And of course, you know, the times it does are still very tragic and noteworthy and worth preventing other things being equal. Um, but, you know, comparable risks include things like swimming for kids, right? There are a fair number of like drowning deaths every year. People should probably be a little bit more cautious about those, right? But again, the flu for kids, again, like driving to school for kids, things like that, right? So like people are inconsistent about how much they handle some risk versus others, which is not new. Like people are very, you know, pay an awful lot to avoid um, dying on an airplane versus like dying um, on a car, in a car or something, right? So it is like a little bit irrational potentially. Um, 
but those are kind of individual choices that don't affect kind of every facet of life. Whereas for COVID, I mean, people can take whatever kind of risk preferences they want to some extent, right? Um, but if you're imposing restrictions on people, then um, then you kind of are superimposing someone else's view of risk. And I think the average kind of public health person is maybe more risk averse than the average citizen is. Um, and they also have like different kind of like political priors about kind of what is important and what isn't important, right? Um, so we kind of said, okay, let's kind of like take empirically what trade-offs are people willing to make in terms of trading off safety with the ability to, to have more freedom, right? Um, empirically, you could kind of try to measure what trade-offs people make and then kind of cater a COVID policy to that. Um, I don't think we're really kind of in very many places kind of near that equilibrium, right? In some places we're on one side, in some places the other side, right, where it's totally lit. Uh, let her rip, I think is also a bad idea with no restrictions at all, right? But like, but people are not, not really kind of trying to back up and and even approach taking kind of a cost benefit kind of more rational point of view that kind of reflects people's revealed preferences. I think it's hard to have the ability to look at risk from just a stand back neutral. This is the effect that we'll have on everyone as a society. I understand the individuals will be affected and what what's the best actual policy for us and then what's the actual effect of these policies in terms of how often they shift deaths and 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 disease and whatever they might affect. So I, I think like um you know I, I think it's tough with uh I think it's tough when you look at risk. I think poker players specifically have a really good knack of understanding risk and weighing it. I think as a poker player, you should be playing for amounts of your bankroll that you're able to afford if you lose. Uh, it's easy with money. It's hard with lives. And yeah. so creating policies that reflect risk for people's life is a tough place to be. Um, so, But speaking of risk, I think that there might be some kind of written publication at some point. I don't want to <laughs> say anything for sure. Would there be somewhere someone could read to find out about risk at some point in the future? Yeah, so I'm working on a book, uh, which is tentatively titled On the Edge, um, but it's a book about gambling and risk. Um, so it kind of starts out talking about poker and sports betting, um, then gets into various areas that are, I think, functionally equivalent to gambling. So investing basically of various kinds, um, talk about crypto, talk about like uh, the Ooh, art market, the real estate market. Yeah, I don't know much about crypto yet. It's like okay. further on the docket for doing research, right? Um and then talking about kind of risk from a broader perspective. So like um, we'll use COVID as an example of like kind of how difficult it is to put this stuff into practice. Um, we'll look at things like extreme sports and like the nature of like, you know, is risk taking like embedded in our DNA and to what extent do we need it for survival, right? So talk to a bunch of kind of crazy weird anthropologists and stuff like that. Um, so that should be, that's that's the book. And it's kind of, um, I'm in the early stages of it now. Um, when I'm in Vegas, it's for research purposes according to my tax attorney um, research no it partly is but like you're trying to get like a little bit immersed in this community as part of it right um because it's also a book about like um you know the way that like poker players think and people who are adjacent to poker players think so sports betters investors right um uh traders right they are kind of like part of a different like tribe than you encounter in politics, certainly, right? Um, so part of the book is kind of like autobiographical in a way, because it kind of comes from like, I am from the poker playing tribe, right? Um, and to me, I think kind of people in politics are kind of insane. Um, 
And, but that's kind of my vocation, right? They right. would probably think poker players are insane, right? You kind of come to a poker table. They're like kind of betting on prop betting and everything. They play credit card roulette at the dinner table, right? They would of think course. poker players are totally fucking insane, right? But like, but that's kind of like the way I think. And I played poker before I ever wrote about politics. And so, and so like, it's trying to like kind of explain these different points of view um, and probably have a happy conclusion that like, actually they're both kind of valid and important to have in society, right? Um and so that's kind of that's kind of the motivation, I think. With with poker, it, it's interesting compared to most communities because in poker, you have to back things up with money. So when you have a take, let's say you have a terrible take, and then and then it's potent, it, it's possible to bet on the outcome of that take. Someone will try to bet you, oh, you're an idiot. Let's bet on this. And then you can say, Oh no, I, I I'm not gonna bet on this. Well, everyone will just assume that means you're wrong because you said something, you're not willing to bet, so you're wrong. So you kind of have to make a decision. You have to either backpedal and then admit you were wrong or you have to bet on it. And in other communities, that is not the case at all. And I've, no. been in, <laughs> I, I've, been, I've been in the video game community a little bit. I'm a little bit of a gamer. And someone will say something and, I'm, and I'll say, no, you're wrong. I'll bet on it. And they oh, I'm not going to bet money on that. Right. Because you're wrong. So the poker community is, is very, is sort of sharp in that way. And the investment community, the crypto communities, those, those are kind of similar. Um, w- with regards to crypto specifically, I know you said you're you're maybe considering learning more about it in the near future. Have you made have you dabbled at all there? Is there anything that you either own or you like or have you have you looked into it at all? No, I basically will buy uh, crypto to deposit into online poker sites if I need to, and that's that's about it. No, I don't. I mean, I wish I had. Um, I'm kind of like adjacent to a lot of kind of crypto friendly people, but no, I, I have no worthwhile opinions on it. At okay. the current time, unfortunately. Okay. Okay, that's that's fair. Buy Bitcoin. That's that's the that's the, <laughs> my my myself or Ethereum. That's that's good too. I mean, you can get into the weeds, and a lot of the the plays where you can make 10, 20, 50x in short periods of time. People will talk about their stories. You can look into NFTs. You can get in all all the weeds on, on those things. Um, if you guys are interested, if you guys are interested in NFTs, we did a podcast with Mike McDonald recently. That was good. But basically, I think I think the the general idea is that over time with how much money the government's printing, it's going to be a limited amount of these cryptocurrencies. Demand's only going to go up over time. And the younger generation, this might even be the biggest point. The younger generation just absolutely loves this stuff. And so as they do accumulate wealth, I think that it's going to further move into those asset classes as older people die off. But yeah, definitely, definitely look into that stuff. A lot of good stuff to learn about it. For sure. Um, going back to the, to the world series of poker. So, well, actually let's talk about your poker career a little bit or your poker background. Uh, so your background is, is in poker. I think you were on two plus two back in the day, right? Post a little yeah. bit there. Um, what got you into poker? And then, and then can you talk about the poker you've played in your, in your life? Um, so uh, I first was exposed to poker when I was a counselor at debate camp, which I know is super dorky. Right. Um, but um, the guy who ran the camp, great guy named Will Repco was a former debate coach at Michigan state university. My high school coach um, was into poker the movie Rounders had just come out, right? I'm nice. dating myself a little bit, right? Um, so the counselors, who are a bunch of college kids, basically would like play um, seven card stud, uh, high low with a declare, uh, kind of late at night. Um, what is that? What is a declare? You either put like zero, or it's like something like zero chips for low, one chip for high, or two chips for both. So you, there's no qualifier for the low hand, right? Um, you declare whether you're going for low, high, or both. And you have to win both the high and low to scoop, right? If you declare both. Um, okay. It's a actually super fun game, but it's a game where like 
The steel edge is quite high. Um, it's also a game that's like kind of easy to collude in if you know kind of who's going for what, right? Um, there wasn't like collusion in this game, but like, but like kind of just being like a mathematically somewhat talented person, like I actually kind of like made um, a fair amount of money playing um, playing eights or better. We're not, not eights or better, actually high-low without a qualifier um, with just some kind of like basic card sense. I made like three or 400 bucks um, over the course of a few weeks playing this game, right? And like eventually went to like the, local Indian casino in Michigan, um, the Mount Pleasant, like Soaring Eagle, something or another, right? Um, and played, I think, one, two, limit Texas Hold'em and got totally destroyed at limit Hold'em, right? Had no idea what it was doing whatsoever and felt like really bad about it. And so, you know, you lose 300 bucks when you're like 20 is like kind of a big deal, right? At least for me. Um, so I went dormant for a while, um, went to college or finished college, got a consulting job. My friend at the consulting job was starting a... Um, like a home game, right? And I'm competitive. So I'm like, I'm going to like go practice um, online, right? So I started playing like Yahoo poker for free and like free poker sucks, basically. There's like it's nothing not, online. Yeah. It's not a good training tool. So some site, Pacific Poker, I think it was, had something where like, we'll give you 25 bucks, no questions asked, right? Um, just kind of like sign up for an account, you get 25 bucks. And if you if you play enough hands and you eventually qualify to actually pull that out of the site, right? And I kind of like, Lost 25 bucks quickly, but then decided to deposit 100 real dollars um, and never had to. It was always net positive on my poker career after that. Um, wow, nice. Ran really well at, at Pacific Poker for a while. I mean, playing um, playing Limit Hold'em, right? Eventually, like, you know, 1-2 and 2-4 and eventually 15-30. You're limited to, like, one table at a time. Like, I had a big, like, like not a, like, starting hands chart, but, like, kind of like a thing I printed out at Kinko's where it's, like, here is the all in equity of each hand, which is actually like a quite terrible way um, to judge the value of like, I think those are, I think those are banned now. I think that's actually cheating. So don't try and do that these days. Okay. It's yeah. Cheating. But it wasn't like a starting hands chart though. It was just like, it was just like, you know, nine ways all in. Here's how often ACE five suited wins, that kind of thing. Sounds um, like a cheating situation to me. <laughs> they, they've really tightened up the rules lately. Okay. Um, Pacific poker, not enforcing the rules tightly. I don't think, um, okay. but a combination of like kind of running well and probably just, running well and running well, kind of did pretty well there. Um, eventually started playing the party poker um, six max, mostly limit games. So 1530, 3060, 100-200. Um, I don't think I was great, but like I erred on the side of being aggressive at a time when conventional wisdom about Hold'em strategy was like way too conservative, right? For limit Hold'em in particular, um, where you want to be playing a fair amount of hands. You want to value bet very aggressively on all streets and limit hold them generally speaking. Right. Um, you want to defend blinds and attack blinds and stuff like that. Right. Um, so I was kind of thought of as being like very lag. I think it was actually kind of like playing much more correctly than like kind of what the common um, styles were at the time. And so maybe not even being like all that skilled against like really good opponents. I would just kind of like capitalize on, on people's weaknesses in terms of like their overall strategy and like kind of made, you know, decent amounts of money playing Limit Hold'em in 04, 05, 06. Um, and then the UIGEA passed. Um, this is pre-Black Friday. Um, but so that closed down Party Poker, which is by far the softest site for Limit Hold'em at volume, right? Um, I was kind of tilted, started to run pretty bad. So I kind of wound up quitting in mid-2017. Or mid, oh, sorry, mid-2007. Maybe I got the whole... Yeah. 
thing a decade off, right? So 04, 05, 06, I played professionally for three years, basically, and then then kind of quit um, after the UIGEA passed, pre-Black Friday, fortunately. I actually picked up the torch where you left off because 2007 is about when I started playing online. So pretty much, you know, we have... I, I I carried on the torch for you. Perfect. And and you did you play Limit ever or not really? I never played. Li- I I mean I played a tiny tiny bit of Limit, but but not, not really. It just it never really interested me that much. And I think No Limit had started to boom with the Chris Moneymaker thing. And um, no, I mean No Limit's a much a much better game. Um, I know I'm not well, sure. It depends how who you ask. It depends but, who you ask, right? I mean I I um I'll sometimes play like Live Limit because there's like so many like literally chips in play. It's just kind of ridiculous and fun. Um, but like, but like, I don't know, it's, it's the, there's not nearly as much strategic depth in limit hold'em. Um, it got solved a lot sooner and it's kind of more easy to implement the solutions, I think. Um, so I think the game was like somewhat dying anyway in 2006. And like, I probably wasn't like willing to like go and like really devote myself to, to, to learning tournament, no limit hold'em or whatever. I think with with poker just in general, it goes back to risk aversion. People are just very risk adverse. And one thing that I found coming through the stakes was pretty much all the way to the top, including the top, almost everyone is too conservative. They either are not willing to bluff enough or call enough. There are a couple exceptions that come to mind, but but realistically, everyone is too tight because when you have a good hand, you're going to keep betting and raising because you want to make money. You have a good hand. But when you have bad hands, they need to bluff 10 or 15% of the time. You're, that's not intuitive. You're not. You're not just naturally trying to hit those 10, 15 percent bluffs everywhere. So, the result of that is people are just chronically under bluffing. And I remember when I was coaching, uh, sort of my my stable players that I would back and coach, when we would do review and go through their sample, and I'd coach them. E- even guys I was teaching to be as aggressive as possible and just hammer people, they would be too conservative because. Unless it was a spot, oh, in this situation we do this thing, right? Then they can do it because they they prepared for it. But poker has so many different situations that a new situation comes up, and on the fly now you have to make sure that you're not being too conservative and yeah. be willing to bluff with weird hands. And 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 sometimes they're not very intuitive. Like for example, there's a lot of spots where um, you know poker solvers will recommend taking hands like pocket deuces and bluffing with them because when you have deuces on certain boards your your cards don't interact with the board at all so they make nice bluffs because your opponent can have more hands that missed or whatever it is and so you have to have your pocket twos and think oh well i have completely nothing here time to bluff right so you need to you need to be looking at to try and find spots like that and early on people were really bad with that in finding those situations and and even at higher stakes heads up we're just way too conservative but even even today the the average player's weakness is being too conservative that that still hasn't changed yeah one good thing about like the Limit Hold'em background for playing. So now I play No Limit Hold'em tournaments a little bit cash, pretty much exclusively, right? Um, and I spent kind of years in some ways trying to unlearn habits from Limit Hold'em. Um, but one thing that's good is like, to be a good Limit Hold'em player, you have to kind of be a brawler, right? You have to win a fair number of pots because like the pots are all kind of medium size relative to a No Limit game, right? Um, and so I figured out like, how can I possibly kind of win this pot through a bluff or through kind of a thin call or whatever else, right. Is something which I think is like a, a pretty good instinct in, in no limit hold'em as well. If applied carefully, they're also like batting instincts, right? Like, you know, I think in no limit hold'em in general, you should be judicious about kind of betting medium strength hands, right? There's a time and a place for it, but like I err on the side too much of like protecting my hand when, um, 
when it's not GTO approved, right? And that's kind of like a carryover from like playing a little bit too much limit. Um, yeah, in limit, like, it's not yeah. as bad if you bet a medium strength hand and get raised. You just call. You're gonna get you just know. I'm like, no, I'll play yeah. limit, right? And like, I like was at the Bellagio 4080 some night, right? And like, I bet like a uh, second pair, right? And I'm raised. And there's an overcall. I'm like, I am so fucked, right? Like instant muck. And like, of course, I have the best hand, right? And it happened the same thing happened like the next orbit, you know? So it's just like, it's very different mentality. Um, but but yeah, being like a little bit like, I mean, it like especially if you are playing somewhat higher stakes tournaments, right? Like um, being a little sticky, I think is is important against tougher opponents, and no, and also being able to like bluff is like is pretty important, right? Um, yeah. Am I, I, am find, I? Yeah. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Was... And like, I can find bluffs. I think a lot of people who are kind of like intermediate players maybe might not find as much, right? Um, that's just kind of one of the skills that kind of like, like to me, there's like a power side of poker and like a finesse side, right? And the power side is like putting pressure on people, bluffing, extracting value from your hands, right? Um, like that part I'm, I'm, pretty good at right um the finesse side the more defensive poker discretion is a better part of valor trapping making hero folds um i think i'm i'm less good at right um because you don't learn those instincts as much kind of playing six max you know 30 60 limit hold'em which is kind of where my training ground was um but i think you know erring on the side of like being good at the power stuff is probably higher variance but still like is not a bad style for 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 contemporary no limit hold'em i think that that if i had to give someone one sentence and send them into a poker game the sentence would be keep betting when you have good hands so that's the power side of poker it's the more important side you need to make sure you win pots at higher levels you'll get destroyed doing that because then if you check your week you're just going to get eaten alive by these guys and one of the things so my, my ground background is more heads up poker so one-on-one um that's what i was best at and then uh i played a lot of the high six tournaments i played some high six cash as well but there are there are interesting dynamics that sort of exist N- now we're much closer to solutions for no limit so it's a little bit different than it was let's say f- even five years ago but when i'm playing someone i want them to know hey you're not going to get to profitably bluff me in these spots if i have folds that are folds i'll fold but if i'm close i'm going to be at least mixing calls and if i have something that seems like it's a good bluff catcher from a removal standpoint i'm going to be calling and i'm going to make you have to have it so good luck on your bluffs versus me and especially in heads up when people sort of start to feel trapped like that i i can't bluff you i can't get my bluffs through it's i'm scared of bluffing in these spots then their checks become weaker because when they bet, it has less bluffs. And so they start to get pigeonholed into these strategies that aren't good. And and one thing that I found in Heads Up specifically was, you know, getting into all these weird, tough spots. You to think about all your range, all your hands, and sort of creating some guidelines for yourself that make sure that you're not getting run over. It makes you really tough to play against. And, and that's a really important aspect of playing at the highest levels or at least the higher levels. If you're playing in a a, a $1,000 tournament with a 1,000 people or whatever, it's not going to matter as much that you have a lot of finesse in these, in these situations. Oh, when I three bet Kings and I flop an over pair, I should bet the flop 85% of the time, right? That's probably roughly accurate depending on boards as an average, probably roughly accurate, but you probably don't need that when you're playing in that field. But if you're playing in a 100 K high roller and you're never checking your over pairs on boards, you're going to, you're going to face a lot of small bets in position and you're not going to have check raise ranges. What do my check raise range looks like? So, there's a there's a clear gap there between playing at the highest levels and playing at at, at the mid tier levels, and it's important for when you play high stakes. 
for for sure. Although it's kind of interesting if you're like a, a skilled amateur playing against kind of GTO pros, because like I think they do do them some things against me that are exploitable, right? They are not playing pure GTO against me. They're like making estimates of like how I play that sometimes I think are off, and I think I can exploit them because like because I mean there is some similarity in how the top players play now. I think especially in tournament poker, and so it's kind of like. Um, so I mean, I have played this exact pro, but I played someone else like him or her, um, and therefore kind of understand the adjustments they make maybe incorrectly against me. And so I think there are some exploits that I can maybe make that, um, that you wouldn't be able <laughs> to make necessarily, which is kind of nice. Um, yeah. you know, I mean also, but like, there's a very, very, like, there's a very soft underbelly and live poker tournaments right now. Right. I played, um, yeah, the one. What was it? The WP Seminole in Florida, right? And then played a bunch um, in Vegas in in July, in June and July and August, right? Um, I mean, there are like a lot of. There's a lot of very very dead money in tournaments up to up to maybe five k, I think even. Um, and so you know, so it's it's a pretty nice time for for live tournament poker right now, for sure. I think that even 10k buy-ins can be. Soft. I mean, the main the WSB main event is extremely soft. It yeah. just is. You have you have, every, without fail, every year I play WSB main event. Day one just has the most insane stories, and and I I just I see so much wild, crazy shit. Day one, I I remember this one day. I got moved to table day one. I sit down. Everyone's got just tons of stacks. I'm thinking, how the hell is this possible? Everyone's super deep. It's day fucking one. And then the first hand, some guy opens into the gun. I three bet mid position with, 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 I think I had Kings. I want to say I had three bet Kings. And then the guy just ripped 200 big blinds under the gun. Um, and I just, I, I just folded because I thought I'm not going to, it's some old guy. I'm not going to put in Kings day one of the main. And then he just shows me the ace queen offsuit. And I think oh, maybe, I sh- maybe I should have just realized, Oh, this is, this is everyone has a ton of chips. The seat I'm in, somebody busted. Shit's been happening here. But, you know, so you just see stuff like that or you see you see just all kinds of crazy flats and everyone's – day one of the main is just – it's unbelievable the, the kinds of stuff that you see. So it, it can happen at higher stakes points too. But the, the lower ones, are, I mean, they've, they've always been soft. And, and I've, I've made fun of tournaments and tournament players quite often because it's so soft compared to a lot of the cash games, especially online. Um, but the reality is I think if you're trying to make the most money from poker – these days the the value is in tournaments and the value is in private cash games those are basically the best spots to be able to play i think it's probably right i mean you know game selection still obviously kind of super important um it's a little bit hard to know kind of um if you're not playing professionally right um then it's a little bit hard to know kind of what your objectives are sometimes right like during my kind of trip in in the summer um there are a couple times where there's like a you know Venetian $800 tournament or like one of those poker go um, 10Ks, right? And like kind of would wrestle with like the 10K, I'm probably, I mean, there's no rake, which is nice, right? Um, but you're probably break even-ish, you know, and probably you're plus some very high percentage in the Venetian 800 where people like barely know the hand rankings, half of them, right? And it's like kind of wrestling with a kind of like, what is the kind of higher life decision is like a little bit, tricky i think um that reminds me of there's a story about bill gates at the bellagio and someone in bobby's room just realized that bill gates was sitting out in the lobby just playing one three or two five or something maybe might even been one three and so 
he goes out there and asks him and says, Hey, we're playing in here, you know, a little bit bigger game hop. And then he just says, no, that's funny. I'm, I, I'm happy just playing the one three. I mean, I found that like, I mean, um, you have to play stakes where like the money is meaningful to you. Right. Um, for, Bill, for Bill Gates, I guess. I know. Gets, right. So it's... <laughs> well, or, or I guess he can't, he kind of inherently can't do that. Right. Um, but no, it's kind of a, it's kind of a weird thing. It's kind of no, hard to know kind of, um, you know, I mean, I, um, I played on poker after dark recently. That was fun. I think I can't reveal oh, the nice. results because the episode doesn't come out yet. Um, okay. But it's playing like higher in cash than I'm used to. And like, one thing I found is like, I don't get very easily intimidated at higher stakes, which is like a really nice attribute to have. Yeah. Um, and so kind of, um, you know, if you're able to like bluff a little bit, if you're a little bit sticky and if you don't get intimidated by, um, by the actual cash or kind of ICM value, then those are, I think three pretty important skills to, to playing in tougher games. Um, Huge. yeah, I don't think they make you a winner, but they, they give you a chance to like, at least, um, at least tread water. And then, you know, I mean, one ironic thing is like, cause I don't have as much kind of experience. Like I think I'm not as good as like extracting money out of the fish, but like, but you learn that stuff, right? Like I played, if I basically kind of playing like three and a half weeks of poker with a one week break consecutively, um, like at, at the end of that, you're like picking up a lot of live reads on people. Right. And just kind of like situational awareness. Like I can actually like exploitably like kind of raise this button to five X cause they're going to call. Right. Um, and they're not going to think about like kind of what that does to my range. And like, so just kind of like um, having that kind of like wider repertoire of skills or something, which is I think kind of fun. Playing higher stakes impacts people differently. And uh, being able to separate yourself from that is really important. I've seen a lot of people that play well when they play high stakes and they play different. And it might not even be that they play too tight because the money means they might be overly aggressive because they want to show that doesn't mean something to them that they they change their game and the best players are able to play at higher stakes and just play their same game oh this is still the same game it's still the same blind still the same everything is the same it's just the numbers are bigger i'm gonna play how i've always played that has gotten me here this far so that that's actually a if you can do that it's an extremely good skill set to have but but most people are not able to really disassociate from the money like that and it's like, I don't play often enough to like really have like a lot of my like life bankroll on the line, right? Like I'm, I'm betting amounts that like, you know, I kind of always assume that in tournament poker in particular, right? You know, you're not going to cash the vast majority of the time. You're going to have whole series where you brick every event or all but one or two events, right? And so you kind of assume that like, you know, I'm not paying, playing with money that I can't afford to lose. And like, and that kind of opens you up to like, to like, I don't know, right? Um, being like a little bit more, free to kind of play well uh at whichever stakes you're playing bank banco management is extremely important so um have you what, what have you done to prepare for this poker you done any study you 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 done anything to to get ready to to get yourself into shape for this or you just kind of hop in no i study pretty seriously i mean i watch a lot of um i have a poker coach um i watch like a lot of videos um i play a lot online i mean there were some like friends games over zoom that started the pandemic that were fun there's also some of the um gray market poker sites, which I'm not sure I'd recommend. I like, I don't know. I think they're like, I mean, A, like relatively tough for the stakes that you're playing or let me put it like this, right? The stakes that for me are fun to play. Those online games are pretty tough, right? I just don't have the patience for like grinding out like a $50 entry 
tournament, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now and then, yeah. right? But like, but it does get you like a lot of reps. So that's like something to be said. Um, if I, have, not, yeah, go if, ahead. If, if I was coaching someone, the first thing I would say is let's get an online sample and let's see kind of what we have because the great thing about online is you get in way more hands and and you can see tendencies, you can see things that you can visualize the data and actually have something that you can cross reference when you're trying to improve. Because when you play live, you can write down notable hand, but a lot of times if you wanted to, if let's say I wanted to teach you how to play poker better, it might be the, all of the things that you think are not that are not noteworthy that are that I really want to talk about. It, it you you of course remember the big hands, the big spots, the the close one, the all ins, but it could be that just a simple turn barrel that you're just always missing that's actually forty percent barrel because sometimes it's not intuitive that the hand you should choose um, don't really don't really work and make sense. By the way, uh, I'm actually going to give you a few free upswing poker courses to improve okay, your game, Nate. <laughs> On the house, take them. Let me know what you think about them. They'll improve your game, okay? So I'll hook you up after after the the pod today. Um, For sure. No, I mean, and so much is about like having like, because like nine times out of ten, you probably don't get anything from your poker study, right? But it's like the one time where you make like an insight, like one insight I made recently was about like, I for a long time was like kind of using like one check raise sizing, which is... I think actually like a decently large mistake, especially on certain like dry board textures, right? Um, do you mean you're using one for all boards or using, what do you mean by that? Do you mean- I would say, I would say I would, had not put much thought into when is a um, smaller versus larger check raise appropriate, right? Okay. Whether it's board dependent or whether you have multiple sizes on the same board, right? I was just kind of saying, okay, a check raise, uh, let's just do three X ish their bet unless their bet was really small, really large. Right. Um, but you know, and all of a sudden, like when you were like, on like kind of like ACE high boards and like other dry boards, right. That you probably, um, you need a smaller check raising range, um, or a smaller size. So you can check raise more often and like kind of force them into iffy situations with like King Jack with the backdoor flush draw or things like that. Right. Um, and all of a sudden, like kind of that realization from a hand, I, I misplayed a hand that worked, by the way. I like check raised too big on an ace high board with a flush draw, and the guy folded in a fairly big hand, right? So the outcome was fine, right? Um, but you know, you put it through a solver, and you're like, okay, it's never check raising that big here. Um, then, like, kind of thinking through yourself, like, kind of talking about it with my coach about kind of why the solver was playing it differently than I did, right? And so, and so that insight is going to be like pretty valuable going forward, right? Or thinking more about like, you know, I played a lot of these. Um, multi-day events, right? So a lot of time you make day two, you come back to day two, you know what the lineup is, you know, here's how many blinds I have, right? So I kind of really working on like, what is my like three and four betting strategy um, in these spots here? Kind of really focusing on that with ICM implications in play, right? Even though it turns out that usually you double up or bust out anyway, it like is no longer relevant. Just like the process of like kind of formulating, okay, what does like a somewhat balanced range here look like under ICM, right? Um, and before too long, all of a sudden you're like, you start to do like weird intuitive things that like kind of match the solver output things that you thought, like all of a sudden, like the, the hard to find bluffs, all of a sudden you're like making those a bit more intuitively and stuff like Damn that. Damn man, but, how good did you get over this? This, this we, might, we might have to have a heads up match. <laughs> see, see how you, see how you're doing. I think probably not, man, but like, um, but no, but like I, 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 I've been playing poker in some form or another for like, for like, God, how long now, man? Since uh, like, you know, 20 years or something. Right. 
um, 22 years, no, like you, but, you develop some skills for sure. On, on the other hand, a lot of the worst people have been playing poker the longest. So I don't know if that always really helps you saying how long you've played. <laughs> but it's like, it's like kind of caring about, I mean, part of it too is like, um, I think I have pretty good intuition for like sizing up frequencies based on mixed information. You know what I mean? Like if you see someone like um, raise eight times in the first two orbits, right? Um, and they have a certain demeanor. Maybe you can tell they're like a pro, but they seem like they're a little bit like, you know, tilted and stuff like that. Right. I mean, I think like, so you're think saying like, I'm at the table. I'm there at you the table, are. Yeah. Right? No, but like, you can like kind of, you know, kind of, when do you correct for that enough? When do you like kind of overcorrect for that? And like, kind of like noticing like population tendencies and stuff like that. Well, you have to be careful, right? Because like the population tendencies at like, um, a Vegas, $2,500 tournament at Venetian are different than the ones at some $88 ACR tournament. And they might be different than the ones at like a, the same live tournament in Florida, for example. Um, but like kind of like being immersed in this same player pool for a period of time, like I felt like that produced a lot of learning. Also like playing the same people um, in my Zoom game week after week in the pandemic, we're still in the pandemic, but like in the kind of pre-vaccine pandemic, um, like that's really quite useful, right? Um, kind of figuring out and playing, you know, even getting these games where you're playing this uh, little, you know, 18 person tournament, you kind of wind up playing um, heads up a fair bit, right? Um, and I'm not very good at heads up, but like there is something about like kind of like when you can actually get in someone's head and like kind of figure out what their algorithm is. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's I a very cool play. feeling when you're like, I kind of figure out kind of, I know what you're doing, right? And therefore now it's kind of easy to play my hand and reciprocity like how I think you're playing your hand. But So I used to play poker like that. I spent most of my career playing like that. And I think I was really good at that and heads up, figuring out the way people ticked and, and creating counter strategies and sort of fine tuning to be able to beat people. And I had all kinds of creative methods I, I used along the way. But in today's world, I just did a heads up challenge earlier this year versus Daniel Negreanu. And I studied a lot for that. And I kind of threw all of that away and just said, I'm going to play as close to perfect as I can. Good luck. And, and I think one of the things that it has let me do is when you get good enough of that, you you kind of don't have to care because whatever you think, if we play heads up, if we play six max or a full ring, of course, I'm going to have a bunch of leaks. But if we play heads up, I'm not going to have very many leaks. I'm not perfect, obviously. I'm going to make mistakes. I made a bunch of mistakes in that challenge. You play so many hand. You, you know, over the course of a 25,000 hand challenge, I might have made 75,000 decisions or something. There's going to be some bad ones in there for sure. But I think I'm going to be so much closer to equilibrium than you could exploit me for that just bring on the try to exploit Doug and I'm going to run you down. So I guess I feel from that experience, I feel kind of jaded now about even just trying to get tells. I, I just feel why well, even care? Just I just show up and win. That's so I just feel like I'm going to win. So why even care? I guess but you're, I, but you're playing the best people in the world, right? I'm playing these tournaments where there might be like um, four really bad players. And unfortunately, like, Steven Chidwick sits on your left and, and, you know, and if he's at my table, then I try to play some semblance of GTO against him, which is probably not a very well-developed kind of semblance of it. Right. Um, if there's a pro that's less good than Chidwick, then I, again, I think I have like um, decent instincts for how they may be trying to like exploit me. And kind of, like you said, there are even some like population wide tendencies that maybe I think kind of slightly incorrect. Um, but no, I mean, I think, I think, uh, 
I mean, I, I don't think this is their intention. You know what I mean? I think like understanding kind of how a solver would play and then figuring out kind of when, um, which is hard enough, right? And kind of figuring out when do I have a good enough read or good enough read on the population tendency to deviate from that. I mean, those aren't like incompatible approaches at all necessarily, right? Um, and I feel like, you know, a lot of times I'll say, okay, I am making this C-bet even though it's very exploitive because I just know empirically that it works way more often than it should in this game texture. Like when I tell myself I'm making a play exploitatively, I think it works like I print money on those plays. You know what I, I mean? Um, if I kind of absentmindedly make a play um, and don't think that, right, then I think I lose a ton of money on those. You know See, what I mean? So I guess I, – so. What you're saying is what most players do. I'm not, okay. I'm not, I, you're definitely the standard here and people will argue about, I'll have to argue about this on Reddit until the end of time. Um, because the way that I approach it is, oh, it's this board. Okay. What's the situation? Okay. Well, in this situation, this size makes sense. That size makes sense. What's better? What frequency do I like better given what size do I like better? What, what would the frequency be given that size? What's the EV trade off there? I'm not even thinking about the guy anymore i'm not thinking about who who he is what does he what's he doing what mistakes is he making i'm done i'm just i i don't even need to do that i can just think about the spot and and try and think about what's, what equilibrium is and then i feel i'm freed up to not waste time thinking about things that are irrelevant and i'm able to make really good decisions much more quickly if people start doing really bad stuff very fast then you obviously you can deviate if the best if someone's just randomly open jamming occasionally of course you could make some changes but i think people tend to overestimate their ability to make reads and because everyone is doing it some people are wrong and i'm not saying you're wrong maybe you're really good at it or maybe you're better than the, the population at it because you're a smart guy but i'm telling you your opinion is what the, the people online think and get mad at me oh Doug, you need to go with your reads or my reads are always good and because people have this bias where you want to you want to believe that you're good at things, right? So, I guess I'm not. I don't even get involved in it. I mean, I don't. I mean, have you played a lot of like live MTTs recently? Not recently. Are they especially yeah. good? They're especially yeah. good now. Yeah. If you were playing like a, you know, Hard Rock Seminole uh, WT three hundred dollar buy in event, right? Then you would not play strict GTO. You would think there are too many opportunities to just kind of like print money because people are kind of telegraphing like not subtle Helmuthian reads, right? Just like kind of like, okay. kind of Let's almost like we were telling you, telling you what they have, right? I have a story. Okay. This is from one of the first times I ever played the main event. I it might be the first year. I forget exactly. It's level two, right? So we're ready for someone to blast and in this hand. It's going to be me. I open some garbage. doesn't matter. This guy from the deep South calls in the cutoff. Everyone else folds. Um, oh, sorry. No, no, sorry. He opens. I call in the cutoff. Everyone else folds. So I'm the flatter in the cutoff. Ace high board. And you can see the pain in the man's eyes. You can just see the pain. It is the most upsetting ace this guy's ever seen in his life. I think he 4X <laughs> pre-pop too. It was a big open. Was, okay. This guy's got kings. And I'm just going to blast the fuck off. Okay. Checks. Big flop bet. Insta call. Dark check. I know he's got kings. Blast the turnover bet. Insta call dark check the river. I'm like, all right, we're gonna fire it off here. I just I I two X pot the river. I'm almost down to nothing here in the main. I, I have a third of my stack. Insta call kings are good. Shit, this man is money. So you know, I, I remember doing stuff like that when I was younger and thinking, what the fuck? Like, obviously, fold your kings here. This is this is the silly. But in his head, it was I'm got I got kings. 
I don't believe this young punk or whatever his thought process was. Or maybe it was just I have kings. I really don't yeah. know. What's the chance of an ace? So I think back to moments like that, and, and sometimes you, you get the read, but there's almost nothing you can even do. Maybe if I maybe I should have put him to a decision for all of his chips and he would have laid down the kings, but maybe not. Maybe I hit the rail there because kings are good, you know? It can be no, tough you have to play the read to the eye for sure, right? I mean, like I played a hand, um, a cash hand the other day, right? Where like um, someone... I bet a uh, third pair on the river as a bluff um, and got called and won. Right. And the guy said, okay, I thought from your demeanor, like you were bluffing and he was correct about like my intent to bluff. I was not value betting. Right. Um, however, like the way the board ran out, um, a lot of my bluffs actually beat, his pocket nines whatever bluff catcher he called with right and so like was the hand? Let's, get, of, let's get the, let's get the hand history up in here so i can remember so i have uh jack 10 suited uh you're playing two five at aria uh i raise um he three bets and i call um what, what position is he in I'm in the like the cutoff, and he's the small blind, I think. Okay. So Jack 10 suited, raise, three back get called. Um, the board is, uh, oh my God, let me think. It's like queen 10 X. Um, he bets like a third pot, and I call. Um, the river is. Uh, What's the turn? Oh, the turn, excuse me, is. Am I getting the positions wrong? I think he's in position. Okay, so you're cut off his button or something like that. I'm cut off in his button, right? Um, okay. Because he has because he checks behind the turn, which is kind of the key variable okay. here, right? So I fucked that up, right? I raised Jack ten suited um, in let's say the hijack. Um, he three bets from the button. I call. The board is queen ten rag. Check bet call right. Um, the turn is an ace. Um, so I check. And he checks behind. Um, so I thought he had some kind of hand with like a king in it. So like pocket kings or king queen or something like that, right? Um, the river is another blank, and I bet like um, uh, like eighty percent pot or something. And he contemplated and called. Um, I think your hand is a little too good. A little too good to bluff there. I think. Do you think so? I think so. Yeah. I mean, versus one third pot on the flop. It depends on preflop sizes and stuff. I don't know how big the three bet was. The bigger he three bet, the more more reasonable it becomes. But I imagine you can have at least a couple worse tens, like ten nine suited. Um, and then I would assume versus. I'm sorry, it was, it was, it was, for what it was. It was. Let me think. The board was maybe queen jack because he had pocket ten, so I had jack ten. I don't know if that changes things at all. Um. Your hand is just too strong. Versus yeah. one-third pot on the flop, you're going to have to float some medium pairs, right? You're going to have eights here versus one-third pot, I think. You're not going to be able to fold all of those. I just so, thought he would have like specifically like king-queen or pocket kings a lot or something that I he's, know. He's kind of he's polarized here, though, because when you bet flop check turn, so the flop bet's going to happen high frequency. Queen-jack X board is going to be a high frequency flop C bet. So at least it would be a heads up. I guess in ring it's a little different, but I imagine it will be. And then turn ace, he's going to have a big size that's polarized. So when he checks, he doesn't have most of the top hands. Um, and then he can have a lot of the middling hands like you're describing, but 
He also has a bunch of the 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 weaker air hands that just can't bet this turn because they don't have the equity to bet. So he will have a bunch of folds here as well. So what hands are you really getting him to fold by betting? He's going to call a queen. Um, so you're trying to target King Jack. I, I don't. I, I don't so again, this is a two five game, but, and I, I I'm not like Paul. I can get people to fold. I can get people to lay down fair. crazy hands and show their fair. hand, and like I think you can get like a lot of players to um to fold uh, a higher pair there, which I think you would not. Um, and that's you'd also not in like a, in a 25-50 game, you also probably would not, right? But like, but like that's like a, I guess maybe it's not GTO, but like it's also part of the thing that like, when you err on the side of aggression, that more good things can happen, right? People this can is- lay down hands they're not supposed to lay down or they can make calls that they're not supposed to make, right? Um, this is this is exactly what you said at the start of this poker conversation. By the way, that you tend to lean towards being aggressive and put, put people in spots, and that went well for you. That, that that this is this is an exact example of that working out. Because, yeah, if you bet here, people may make some some big mistakes, and and maybe it's possible if prevot was big enough that that this is a fine bluff. Um, but basically, if you do if you do play aggressive, things can work out for you. And if you're going to lean any in any direction leaning too aggressive and trying to win and being a bit of a brawler, I think is definitely the way to go. I think so. It's also like, you know, I mean, it's again, it's a, it's a two, five game. People don't three bet a ton in two, five. And so like his range is like, I think actually like decently strong there. Um, But I don't know, but yeah, I mean, but like, that's, I mean, definitely like I can, you know, my coach will tell me about like how I like, I'm like too often turn middling strength hands into bluffs you kind of wind up with this kind of like merged range somehow right but it's still not that easy to play against necessarily and so it's like i'm making mistakes i think they're not like hugely costly mistakes though fair definitely fair uh a couple last things i want to talk to you about here before we before we call it today um so what what's up with the nasim taleb beef can you can you just because I, I i follow both you guys I've, I've seen what you're doing and i feel like there's a beef there and some of the back and forth which was really entertaining to look to, <laughs> to, to read what's the story with that i'm not sure why he got cemented shape out of shape about me right we actually were at one point like kind of friendly um because he like kind of wrote me one time and he was like hey you're someone who like does have skin in the game you're actually making predictions we like went and got like some lunch some somewhere at some like middle eastern place we had like wine with lunch which i always kind of like respect the power move of like, having like wine at lunch on like a tuesday right we had like a friendly conversation right and then something like to my mind like uh tilted him about me um but he gets tilted about like a lot of people he picks like fights like a lot of like intellectual types um and like you know he was like making kind of incorrect characterizations of like what our model was saying right he was like taking we have something we used to have something called a now cast which is like what would happen in the election if it were held today which by definition is like very volatile right um because it reflects kind of the immediate condition and you're not discounting you're not regressing toward the mean which you, which you have to right so he mistook like the now cast for our forecast even though it's labeled a now cast wrote a big paper about like why like violated this or that mathematical principle right and kind of like from there it all kind of deteriorated i think right if you're kind of like not taking the time to understand what this product actually is and kind of making incorrect insinuations um but i don't know he gets kind of he really i think kind of uh 
even more than even more than you or I, you know, you and I are both kind of on the more uh, brawly kind of spectrum of Twitter, right? But like he is like that to the nth degree. And I don't know if, if he's listening to this and like wants to go get, have another boozy lunch, then I'm happy to, to do that at any point in time. He's an interesting character. And when he was first, when my friends were first talking about him and his books that he's written, um, I believe you said that he's rewritten the same book four times, actually. Uh, did you say that? or did, I, I think I said that. It, I mean, yeah. he is like, he is someone who uh, I respect the intellect, even though I think he's like an asshole, right? And frankly, if you have like one good book and you get a little repetitive, it's still like actually like if it's a good, robust book, then I think it's like actually still like a pretty useful contribution to make. And so like I, I do respect his like his books and like kind of I think he's a unique guy, but like he's just kind of a a, a jerk. <laughs> To a lot of people online and like and also but also like it misinterprets stuff and like doesn't actually like kind of isn't very rigorous about like critiques that he makes of, of other people maybe he gets a little bit it maybe puts the carriage in front of the horse on some of these takes where he seems to mischaracterize things because he's definitely done that with bitcoin i've seen a lot of aggressive anti-bitcoin stuff from him which i don't know seems seems kind of weird to me because i think if, I mean, if he talks a lot about risk in his books, right? And you would think that having some exposure to some assets that maybe fall under a bit of a different asset class would be something that he would enjoy or find interesting or or whatever. I don't want to mischaracterize him after talking about him mischaracterizing other people. I mean, keep in mind that like social media platforms, especially Twitter, are like algorithmically optimized to like create an emotional response in people, right? So when I'm flying off the handle a little bit, or he is, or I think I'm being rational and people who I'm, who follow me are, I think, being totally insane, right? It's like partly because like, that's what kind of keeps you addicted to the platform and keeps you kind of coming back. And like, and like, you know, like today, like I became like a, they were recording this, I became like a Twitter trending topic because I wrote something saying, I think it's kind of crazy to like Amherst College to policy where vaccinated students now cannot leave campus they need to have permission from like the faculty advisor to like actually attend any social gathering with more with anyone apart from themselves right um they have to wear masks outdoors and everyone on this campus is vaccinated right i said this seems like kind of insane right and they kind of lost the plot these people are vaccinated it's the whole fucking point is that like young people are at fairly robust to begin with but vaccinated they're very very like low risk of like of like any type of severe outcome from covid and because everyone in the community is vaccinated, they're, they're going to spread to someone else who's also very low risk, right? Um, and I become a trending topic because, like, this becomes, like, kind of the political, like, football for the day, right? It's, like, not by any means, like, a terribly extreme COVID take, right? It's not saying, oh, forget masks, right? It's not anti-vax, right? It's saying, okay, when literally everybody in this campus is vaccinated, then saying telling people they can't, like, actually leave campus is kind of crazy, Right? And I think that like 70% of Americans would agree with that. But like Twitter is one platform where you can like say something that like the large majority of the population would agree with. And yet you become like the enemy of the platform for a day because like the liberal blue check marks or uh, conservative blue check marks in some cases or some subgroup get mad at that and like kind of want to like, like make you a target. And like, but Twitter puts you in turning topics because like they encourage that. Right. And that's what kind of like boosts engagement, even though it kind of probably results in a lot of people being more irrational and kind of 
miserable. Um, and so I don't know. I mean, like at some point, probably disengaging from Twitter is probably wise, right? I mean, I think some people now are kind of disengaging from Twitter and like starting newsletters, which number one, um, you're at least being like a little bit considered because I know I could make like a 1200 word essay on why I think the Amherst college policy is insane. That would be like super elegant and articulate. Um, and like would not convince everybody, but would like at least kind of lay things out in a way it would be, I think, decently robust. Um, but like that takes effort. Right. <laughs> um, but like maybe you should do that and you kind of monetize that. Right. And then you and then and then that way, instead of the haters reading you, the people who like you are reading you. Like one of the things I found too in this like whole COVID stuff. Right. Is like I'll have a lot of people kind of write me from like random walks of life. I don't necessarily know very well. Right. And they'll say, I really appreciate you know, lending sanity to the COVID debate and kind of saying things that I might think, but don't want to say publicly because I get excoriated for it. Right. And again, like I am like not a COVID extremist. I am very pro vaccine. I'm kind of like a COVID centrist. Right. I'm like very pro vaccine. I'm very pro normalcy. Right. I want solutions like vaccines and testing to help us get back to normal. Right. I am against most constraints, people interacting with one another. Once they're vaccinated, I think it's time to like, actually like, you know, Social life is very important. School is very important. Um, communities are very important. Interacting in person is important. You know, your dating life is important, right? Um, so I think it's like a very like kind of centrist kind of sane set of beliefs. And like, but like it really kind of rubs people the wrong way on Twitter. Um, in part because like, if you're identified as somebody who is kind of within their tribe, then... Um, speaking out kind of against the kind of beliefs of the tribe will get you like excommunicated like really quickly. Right. Um, and one thing I am kind of like both sides about, about both liberals and conservatives is like, they are both really intolerant of any type of internal dissent. Um, we have seen what happens in the GOP when you're someone like, um, like Cheney speaking out against like Trump's false claims about election fraud. Right. She is like ousted from her leadership position. Right. Um, we have seen on the left that if you kind of say things that are out of step with like the progressive talking point of the day, you get told you're not reading the room the right way. It's not your turn to speak on this. You don't have expertise on this, right? Um, what happened to you, right? Um, even though you might be kind of articulating a position that would like the vast majority of people in Manhattan um, would agree with. Um, and so like, it's like pretty hard when you have polarization then on top of that, you're policing dissent and kind of making the walls of like the, you know, of the bubble, I don't know if bubbles have walls, but like thicker and thicker to keep the metaphor, right. To like avoid kind of having information contaminate you. And like, if you're someone who like, kind of is like, you can't dismiss me easily. Um, but I can like point to when you're being short-sighted or partisan, um, then they'll like result to like result, uh, resort to like name calling, like really, really, really quickly and very like reliably, right. Very reliable. Like someone will step in and say, okay, you are like actually like violating this norm. We believe something for partisan reasons that we have this like irrational attachment toward, right? And you're pointing that out sometimes in a way it's gentle, sometimes in a way that's like humorous, sometimes in a way it's like very direct. It kind of doesn't really matter which one of those approaches you take because like people are uncomfortable with you kind of like uh, being the kind of stick in the mud and kind of pointing out here that like, hey, look, this thing doesn't actually make very much sense. Here is why. Um, and, and they don't want to hear it. Right. 
I will say it was uh, it was fun today. I, I go on Twitter to actually send you a message to say we're going to do the podcast, and then I look at trending and it says your name. I'm like, oh, that seems convenient. We got we got Nate trending <laughs> on Twitter right now, um, and then I, I saw the tweet, and, and honestly, I, I, it it seems kind of silly that that tweet ends no, up. I, like, I can't even like remember. I've done like a trending topic like fifteen times. I can't even remember the reasons for it. Sometimes, That's crazy, right? That's crazy. Uh, going back to talking about sort of normalcy and the value of that, there is sort of the second layer that I think a lot of the left wants to just kind of ignore, which is there are actual drawbacks to not having normalcy, higher depression, higher rates of suicide, uh, worse quality of life. Kids don't get to be kids, sense of community, all these kinds of things that I think get really brushed off as, oh, that's right wing you know, wanting to just have a normal life is right. This is COVID. Every life matters. Save everybody. And there's sort of a an air of uh, holier than than thou. And and I'm a hero because I wore my mask today. That I think a lot of people on the right really hate and and really and, and find very upsetting. And so policy has split so hard, or not just policy, rather, but rather um, people's viewpoints on what policy should be has split so so uh, divisively that. I look back and I think back to middle of last year, I think that it was extremely reasonable for people to to quarantine, to social distance, to wear their masks, do everything you possibly could because we had less information. We, we knew a vaccine was going to come at some point. And then we didn't know, we, we had less, less idea of the long-term effects. And then also I think the threat of hospitals re- reaching critical mass was was a much more serious threat than, than it it well, today is maybe a bad example, but then it has been over the course of COVID as a whole. So I, I, I think that a lot of the liberal policies made a lot of sense back then. But then people will act like today is exactly the same as it was then now that we have, you know, 200 million vaccinated people, now that we have a way better understanding of COVID, now that you know, it's yeah. obviously a different variant, deaths are down, all these things. People want to act like it's exactly the same thing when it's not. And so it's become this, you need to wear your mask all the time, no matter what, because that's what, the, that's what you know, we that's what we do that we're the good guys that's how, that's how when you lose sort of track of what what you should be trying to strive for here which is the balance of normalcy with actually trying to save people's lives um and uh within within poker specifically just kind of being on the centrist topic it's interesting for me because i actually think that my audience is relatively neutral compared to most people it, it probably leans slightly left i imagine but i've run some polls and seen my audience talk and stuff and uh, i think when in poker you have your clearly right right wing guys Mike Mattisau, Doyle Brunson, people like that, where you can see a lot of their followers are sort of on the right. And then you have people that are definitely on the left, like Justin Bonomo and people like that, that uh, have more, uh, most, most people that actually are, are on the left in, in poker, I would say. Um, I found that my audience tends to be kind of neutral. And, and the results, the results of that is a lot of people just think I'm on their side. So I'll say something like, Oh, wow. I didn't realize Doug was a Nazi. I just get comments like that, you know, or, Oh, I didn't realize that Doug yeah. was a SJW. And so I, I, I've typically not gotten too in the weeds. I think I have some issues that I'm on the left on, some I'm on the right on. But I, I really just try to look at issues and, and, and have, an, have an informed opinion and, and try and reason it out and, and not care what side that is. Just try and take a, a, a nuanced, good position. And, and I, I think that you do as well. I mean, that's well, I mean, that's, that's why COVID to me has been kind of interesting and in some ways eye opening, right? Because like no one had any like priors when it came to COVID really, right? Like if I had had to guess, I would think that actually like conservatives would be kind of more afraid and more hawkish toward COVID, right? It's like kind of like an external foreign threat, right? And um, and conservatives tend to favor like more security, right? And more domesticity and liberals like urban life and, and 
cosmopolitan life, right? Um, and by the way, the lockdowns, which like you, I thought the lockdowns were probably a necessary evil for at least the first part of the pandemic. We had no idea what was going on, right? In the vaccine world, that's when it become like more opposed, right? Um, but the lockdowns, if you look at like the data on like who actually is able to work from home, it's all like rich, college educated, like mostly white people and stuff like that, right? Um, like no surprise, yeah. Um, I saw too, right? It's like in all like the all the people of color who are poorer and younger are still doing their uh, their service jobs, right? And they're not able to socially distance and, and work from home. I missed um, someone's comment. My bad. Oops. Go ahead. Sorry. Yeah. Um, but like, so like, so it kind of probably perpetuates inequality in a way that you think that liberals would be more concerned about, but like, but like it became like, like very like polar very quickly in part because of Trump who to be clear had a very incoherent and often misinformed COVID strategy. Right. Um, and like, so like if you ever have like an issue where, um, where no one had a position yesterday and today they all have like really strong positions and they perfectly align with political allegiances, but not any deeper philosophical kind of uh, tenant of those political philosophies, then you should be suspicious that people have those views for, for partisan reasons. Um, and one thing I've learned is like the views that people are most, um, I'll use the term irrational about, even though I know it's a loaded term, right? Um, but the views that people are most partisan and kind of irrational about are the ones they'll defend like more stringently under attack, right? Um, because they're insecure about them on some level. Um, and so therefore they did like, oh, I can just like kind of like contribute my somewhat rational take, right? Um, kind of centrist rational take that, yeah, COVID's bad, but also not seeing any other human beings for a year is bad, right? Can we find some balance here? And like, you'll get really kind of like attacked for that. And, and, and I don't know. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, um, I mean, kind of part of the funny thing too is like kind of being like a data guy. It's also like, you have to be aware of like when there are like omitted variables, right? Cause so many problems you try to solve for like things that are measurable, but like um, <clears throat> people really value normal life, right? And they really value like seeing their friends and family in their community. They really value like sending their kids to school, right? And if you ask somebody, for example, okay, if you could live um, in lockdown um, for the rest of your life <laughs> or go back to normal, but your life expectancy is cut by 20%, right? Like, which would you prefer, right? Like personally, like I'd rather have my life expectancy cut by 20% than have a strict stay at home order for the rest of my life, right? If you kind of like actually kind of tried to measure how people are willing to trade off loss of community, loss of, again, like I think all this like, like Zoom chats with your friends. I mean, I did a little bit of that um, at the start of the outbreak. I stood at sometimes people who are like immunocompromised or, or at higher risk groups, but like, it's like not a good substitute for sitting down and having dinner or a beer with people, right? And there are some things like if you're, you know, I have a partner, right? If I were single and like, I'm just not going to go on any dates for like a year, that seems like quite crazy to me potentially, right? Um, if you have kids, I mean, I don't want to think about like what happens to a bunch of kids who like have this gigantic like interruption of their development for <clears throat> a year, a year and a half. It might be fine. Kids are very resilient, right? But it might not be in like, and like, I think there are a lot of like, there's a big kind of tail risk of like, unintended consequences um 
And so like, I don't know, like if you talk about like a willing to put money on your line, right? On the line, if you could have like some well articulated way to formulate this bet, I'd be willing to bet like a fair amount of money, like not life case money, because I think there are a lot of uncertainties, right? But like, I think in 10 years, um, it's more likely than not that people will see lockdowns as having been quite costly and maybe kind of over-applied instead of under-applied, right? Interesting. I wouldn't say 100%. I'd say 60-40 or 70-30. And that when you kind of tally up kind of all the hidden costs, it may kind of wind up being measurable over the long run, whether it's kind of like declines in educational attainment and the effect that that has or, um, you know, declines. And like, I mean, there are already people who are like, you know, one thing I think is a big deal is like um, the number of like close friends that people have is like way down from what it was 10 or 20 years ago. Right. Um, You know, one reason why I think kind of live poker made such a big comeback. I mean, the WT event I went to in uh, Miami was like the biggest WT ever, even though they had like not enough tables and like people were still wearing masks. Right. Um, You know, I mean, I think like poker for certain types of people, um, especially kind of like, like middle-aged men mostly. I mean, that's empirically kind of who a lot of poker players are. Right. I wish it were more gender diverse for sure. Um, But like, that's kind of like a way that they kind of have like a peer group and a network group and like kind of have like some community that they might not have otherwise. And like, that's important. It's important from a public health standpoint for people to have like communities and networks and friends. And like, somehow you kind of like reduce it all to like, Oh, well, all we're counting now is even like COVID cases. We're like, even like cases now too, in a way where many cases are mild, right? Like cases don't really matter that much either. It's about like, yes, hospitalizations matter, deaths matter, long COVID matters. Those do matter for sure. Right. But like, but like people are like kind of like solving for like the wrong problem, which is not to say that the solution is easy to the other problem. Right. But like, but they're kind of like not even like approaching it the right way is what kind of I find frustrating. I, I have a buddy and he's pretty adamant on this, that if when COVID started, it was a clean 2% of people die. Everyone gets COVID. We move on. He would just take the 2%. Let's just keep going. And that would, that would have been the superior play to doing anything at all. Um, but what do you think about that? No, I don't agree with that because clearly like, when we were delaying for the vaccines, right, there was a very clear payoff, right? We can debate whether that payoff was like worth the cost. Again, I think the cost of like locking down and business closures and school closures is very high. And it's it's in the realm of like uncertain, right? Um, but it's a real debate for, for sure, right? Um, but when we're now in a world where we're like kind of like, you know, people who are vaccinated are, are 10 times less likely to die than they were before. Um, and we're going back to the same policies, even though there's a tenfold shift in outcomes. Um, that seems like it can't possibly be be right, you know? Um, and at first we didn't. At first we're kind of like, okay. At first I kind of thought, okay, we get vaccinated. There's still some cases, but like we understand now that there's a way to protect yourself. If you choose not to protect yourself, then, um, then to some extent, you know, do you expect the rest of society to kind of sacrifice for you i mean maybe to some extent but like that's morally a lot more complex and then like fortunately the group that can't get vaccinated yet kids are are mostly not unless they're at super high risk of covid if kids were like at high risk of COVID, like they were in like the 1918 19 pandemic right then it's a very different ball game right but like but but they are at relatively low risk and like and like you know um to where it can be compared to other risks that are incorporated into risk assessments of childhood, like other contagious diseases, 
like drowning, like driving, right? In the same kind of order of magnitude, or maybe even more close than that, right? And it's like, it's like, but like somehow we kind of lost the thread. And somehow like we kind of learned all this muscle memory of like when cases were rising in the pre-vaccine period where there is a lot of incentive to delay cases to get people vaccinated, and then the cases are much safer, right? We developed these amazing vaccines. Yeah, we might need boosters, but they're pretty amazing vaccines, right? We lower deaths by 90 to 95 or 97% or whatever, right? Delta makes things a little worse, but still 90% plus, maybe even more than that, right? Like we should not be going back to like the same policy regime that we had, but people yeah, have like that- muscle memory from like from last year and they want to trot, trot the same policies out. Yeah, with where things are at today, and I say this and, and I always get told, you can't say that, you can't compare that. But at some point you have to ask, should we have been wearing masks before? If, if it gets to a certain level of safety and then we think about just the flu or whatever else would spread before COVID, it starts to get to a pretty similar degree of danger before as now. Why why are we going to wear masks at a point where it becomes quite similar? Now, right now is obviously different with Delta spiking, but at some point, clearly the we we have to be willing to go back and take on some level of risk. And it's not being weighed like that. It's oh, this is COVID. This is different. No matter how bad it is, no matter what the situation is, you have to ask yourself what why are we not why were we not doing this before? And at some point, we do have to kind of go back to normalcy. I had a question for you as for the uh, do you have a, a macroeconomic sort of take or philosophy on what the U.S. government has been doing with their stimulus packages and policies that have been ramping up inflation and, and obviously printing tons of money. Do you have a sort of macroeconomic take on it? I don't really. I'm an economics major, so I actually am qualified to speak on this. But like, no, I um, I don't really have a take. I mean, I think the kind of consensus among economists is that it might actually be a little bit risky, kind of more so than I think kind of maybe people in the White House might think. I know economist friends of mine are saying, yeah, kind of, you know, behind the scenes, people are a little bit more worried about this than um, than you might get from kind of like the standard liberal take. But I don't have a I'm just trying to triangulate kind of what I hear on before other people. I don't have a personal take on it at all. OK, uh, I had another question here, too, uh, talking about sort of the, the future of politics. And we talked a little bit about the GOP. I I. I'm struggling to see what the GOP looks like in the future. And obviously these things have a way of working out. Obviously in a two-party system, there's gonna, they're going to consolidate in some fashion. But obviously now you have a GOP that's very split into the pro-Trump and the anti, well, maybe not anti-Trump, but kind of anti-Trump by just not being pro-Trump. You have the two factions, sort of the older school conservatives and you have the newer Trump faction of the, of the party. How is that going to kind of play out? Do you, do you see some kind of fracture there? Do you think that it... it will unify in, in some fashion. How, how does that play out over the next few election cycles? I don't know. And the reason why is because usually what happens is that a party um, loses an election. It discredits the wing of the party that loses. And so it adjusts towards some new equilibrium, right? That's what normally happens where, um, you know, Walter Mondale and Michael Dukakis lose Democrats say we need someone who can be like kind of a centrist from the South, right? More folks. We nominate Bill Clinton instead. That works. Maybe he gets lucky. Maybe he's good, right? So you adjust, right? Um, you know, Trump lost in 2020, but he tells his voters that the election was stolen from him. And so that adjustment process does not take place, right? Um, what do you, actually, I just what do you think about the fact that he said that? Because I kind of remember hearing you talk about it around that time period. And I, and I feel you were you had a, a particular amount of disdain for the fact he was saying that. I mean, obviously I think most people do, but how do you feel about the fact that he said 
he said that. And and does that have lasting repercussions that could really be bad for the country? Oh, for sure. No, if you have 48% of the population, or it's not 40%, there are a few Republicans who disagree, right? But if you have like 40% of voters thinking the election was stolen, um, and you kind of lay um, a game plan for the GOP to potentially um, invalidate the results of an election or create at least constitutional chaos next time, I mean, that's a, that's a, those are very serious threats. Yeah, for sure. I mean, if you kind of have like a state legislature say, like, let's say in Georgia, the state legislature says, okay, uh, the election, there was fraud in Fulton County, whatever, right? Um, under the constitution, the state legislature can like dictate how it like um, appoints electors. Um, so it could say we're not going to have a popular vote at all, right? It probably wouldn't do that. If after the fact it says, okay, we're going to take control and like appoint our electors, even though, you know, even though ABC News says Democrats won Georgia, right? We're going to send Republican electors to electoral college. That's a big time, big time constitutional crisis that like, I don't know how that would evolve or be resolved ultimately, but like, that's a big time problem. And the chances of that are, are non-trivial are like, you know, I don't know, at least 5%, maybe 15 or 20%. That's a, that's a pretty real risk. I think that was not true as much in 2020 because like um, those norms had not been violated as much, but it's kind of like you strip away, like we have stripped away all the levees and guardrails now, right? So if there's the kind of perfect storm, I don't think there's a lot of defenses um, that, legally the country necessarily has. Um, so no, it's, it's like, it's very <laughs> dangerous, right? As I, much as you can say, like people get up in arms about partisan things that are trivial and silly. Like this notion of like the election being stolen is a, is a very kind of um, dangerous piece of like kryptonite to be playing around with. And I think kind of like may invalidate the kind of tendency of things. I mean, cause if you look at the long run, like there are threats to society and kind of somehow the equilibrium holds. Right. I mean, and I've always kind of been like an optimist, like I'm, I'm not very optimistic about the direction of the country or society now. And like, I think kind of like things kind of feed back on one another and it kind of feels like maybe the center won't hold. Um, well, we've, I think the real difference now is that we've sown sort of um, uh, a, a, a disbelief into the institutions themselves. And I think if you yeah. look at past elections, uh, every presidential election at the end, the loser said, you got me. And they, you know, came out and they they sort of talked it out. But there was never this. They rigged it in this state. These guys did this. Oh, they snuck them in overnight. It was. I went to bed and everything changed. There was no actual um, argument as to the people that were verifying the elections themselves. And and by the way, Republicans play at, at the local level played a role in in this process it's 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 the strangest thing where i think a lot of the people on the right say oh they rigged it well they is the republicans as well in a lot yeah. of these areas right in all of these a lot of these states that and, and important areas that were lost are, are republican states they're some of these places are run by these cities are run by republican there's there's republicans here as well so if anything i think that and this is actually my argument for the covid covid vaccination as well if the people themselves are, are are running it or doing it, then you can trust it. For example, doctors get the vaccine, okay? You think doctors are thinking, oh, the, I don't know, science is out, could kill you. I'm going to get it. No, they wouldn't be doing it. The In, in Mariposa County, where the Republicans are saying this was fair, you think the Republicans would allow for the Democrats to just be rigging it while they're there? No, they wouldn't allow that because they're Republicans there too. So 
people will act in their own self-interest. And I think that the dissent at at sort of at the, the national level between Trump and some local Republicans has actually been um, a little bit a little bit scary just to see just to see that to attack these people for it being rigged with really no proof. And then to see so many people sort of line. I mean, I, I, I know Republican people that I know conservatives that still think that it was rigged and that there's no way Sleepy Joe could have gotten 80 million votes or whatever, not thinking that, of course, there's mail-ins and voter turnouts at all-time highs. Of course, Trump had uh, had Trump has the second highest number of votes any presidential candidates ever gotten, not considering stuff like that. Um, I, I do think that it's actually pretty scary seeing that. No, I mean, and to draw like, who are you talking to, uh, Olivier Bousquet, about like kind of cheating in poker, right? Like, and kind of, I think his point, maybe your point too, is like, to some degree, the norms of community matter more than the rules because like people can angle shoot, even if the rules say one thing, right? And a lot of things are are murky and enforcing the rules can be hard, right? Um, and so like the constitution's a set of actually not super rigid rules that are like meant to like, that people are partisan, but acting in some sort of good faith, that it's not purely zero sum. And certainly like respecting the idea that when you lose an election, you lose an election, come back four years later and have a better winning message or the other party fucks up. So you get back in power. Right. Um, if people do not believe other people are acting in good faith, right. Then democracy might be fairly fucked to be honest. Right. It's like kind of like pretty hard to like um, to rebuild that in a community. Um, and so like, you know, a lot of like, political science scholars are worried and for a certain amount of time, I kind of thought, okay, well, they're being also my upset. So was like kind of very much like blinker because I'm looking forward to like the next election. Right. So kind of like, I did not think that like there was much of a chance that 2020 would be stolen. I do think in 2024 that this is a, a real kind of tangible, not just 1% outlier threat. Um, and because the erosion of good faith, again, to make another poker analogy, right? Like sometimes you're playing, like you're at the Bellagio, there's some like drunk, whale who was up like um you know 700 big blinds right you're like how the fuck is this happening right you finally go to bed at 4 a.m right and you get back uh at noon finally and he's like cleared out of his last chips right you know if you keep kind of reducing faith in every institution every institution society except maybe the military for years and years and years right and both sides kind of feel like they have reasons to distrust different institutions right like that has to have pretty severe consequences at, at some point. Right. And the fact that like we designed a fairly robust uh, uh, set of solutions that we have like a fairly robust and prosperous society. Like, I don't know. I mean, I think, um, I think it doesn't help to have all that trust decaying. And I think by the way that like, there is like some tie to like COVID and all of this, like the last thing I want people doing now at a time when like democracy is under threat is spending more time isolated from one another. Um, you know, I'm not sure. I mean, first of all, we didn't have COVID. The whole election might have turned out differently. Who knows, right? Um, I'm not sure that some of the events that people don't connect to COVID over the past year and a half are entirely disconnected from COVID, right? Because you just kind of like let people kind of stew in their in their isolation for a period of time, Um you know, put lots of new kind of stresses and strains on people, no matter what, even if we were like, let's do Sweden and kind of people had don't make very many modifications. It's still gonna be a very traumatic experience. Right. But like, but like, I'm not sure that this isn't all kind of like tied together on, on some level. Um, and, you know, as someone who's kind of usually an optimist about 
the U.S., then I'm kind of I'm kind of losing some of that optimism. There, there are definitely going to be a lot of second order effects that are hard to grasp and fully understand. And, and we won't know until further down the road, like you were saying earlier. I, I have to get a, a couple last questions in here before you go. So what are your thoughts on some of the upcoming betting markets? Do, do we got any early early uh, POTUS 2024 takes uh, in, in the pipeline here? What, what, what are you thinking? I mean, to me, they all look within, um, within the realm of being <clears throat> rational. Um, but again, like, one thing I've learned over the years is that like, like eyeballing a market, I don't have good instincts for like um, what the eyeball says versus when I actually build a model, kind of what it will say. Right. Um, Cause building a model is a lot of work. It's a very rigorous process. Right. Um, and so like, I tend not to like think I can beat the market just by like, kind of like spotting a number and saying, okay, that looks wrong. Although again, to me, this looks kind of right. I'm looking at um, predict it right now where, Democrats are very modest favorites to maintain the presidency, but close to a, a coin flip. Um, you know, Trump, I mean, I think Trump at 30% to win the GOP nomination might be a little bit low, if anything. Um, I don't know for sure. I mean, there's also a question of whether whether he'll run or not, but like that seems a bit low, just 30% for him to, for him to win the nomination. Um, you know, I think the market might be a bit low on Biden running again, as opposed to Kamala Harris or someone else, but like the top line numbers in terms of like who wins the Congress, who wins the presidency, I think are within are close enough to saying that like without having a model in place, I wouldn't want to critique them too much. What do, what do you think about the uh, California recall, Gavin Newsom? Um, I think the market's probably also priced about right there. Let me see what it is right now. Um, Looking at your the five thirty eight model of this earlier. Yeah, so we have him ahead by like four-ish points on the recall ballot. Um, the market has him at 80% to avoid recall. Um, that's probably a somewhat sane number. That probably translates fairly well from like the from the polling average to the probability. Also hard to do recalls during COVID. It is hard to have. I mean, this is, yeah. I mean, first of I know, all. I know that from personal experience trying to recall the Las Vegas mayor. That oh, you I, did? I, got, I yeah. got a little thing going. Yeah, I got, I, but then I started to look at the logistics and, you realize the, the I think the average voter, th- this number is so insane. I want to make sure that I'm correct. But I think the average voter age in the Las Vegas election was 82. Average. That's the oh average gosh. person. And do you really want to go knocking on people's doors to get signatures? Because the way that the law was written had to be in person, physically written. Because the obviously the laws weren't accounting for a COVID situation. And then it just was not tenable to be able to do that. Um well, but, by the way, this is like you want to talk about like one knockoff effect of COVID um, is that like the fact that you have this big partisan split <clears throat> in mail voting this year was because Democrats were more worried about COVID, which pre-vaccine especially is understandable, right? Um, but like the fact that you had in different states different batches of ballots being reported at different times is what validated a lot of Trump kind of what I would call conspiracy theories about what happened, right? Um they were kind of used to the returns all being reported on election night. Sometimes you have to wait till the next day, right? Um, but when, like, when two days later or three days later or four days later, Philadelphia finally counts its mail votes, even though we knew ahead of time, like we wrote a lot of articles on 538 saying, this is going to happen. You're going to have a blue shift in some states and a red shift in other states based on the order in which ballots are counted. We can even tell you kind of which states are which. You can tell people that and they still... 
seeing the numbers, right? Seeing Trump ahead in Pennsylvania, and then it turns blue three days later. Um, you know, I'm not sure if the media did enough to prepare people for that, but like it just kind of gave rise to like <clears throat> um, arguments that kind of like mainstream Republicans found credible when they might not have otherwise, right? Because it's something different. And so the fact that COVID caused more male voting, which is, a, I think, a pretty sane solution in general, as well as under COVID, right? But like, that's like an unpredictable knockoff effect that now, um, now our democracy is more under threat because these claims gain more water for that reason, right? Yeah, I, I, I found it. it was actually 80 years old. I want to, that was okay. a, a bad mistake on my part. I, I much younger guys, very different audience. Um, as for what you're saying with the mail-in voting, I, I think voting is really weird because both parties are just trying to argue for what's good for them and not what's actually good for voters, which is prop, which is, and this is obviously my opinion. I think that every American citizen should have a fairly easy way to vote, assuming that they can prove that they are an American citizen that should be able to vote. So I, I guess I'm for somewhat strong identity testing and then for really lax how you vote. I, I, I'm that's, actually fine with almost anything that's easy as long as it's verifiable. That's the populist position, right? Or the popular position too, which is that most people favor voter ID, but they favor making it easy to vote. Um, and so, you know, in an ideal society, that would be the kind of grand compromise that we would move toward. Um, I'm not sure that, because there is an asymmetry, which is that in general, actually maybe not. For a long time, the conventional wisdom was that if you make it harder to vote, then that benefits Republicans because Republicans are more college educated, right? They are um, older, right? They're more regular voters. More passionate. Democrats are not, right? Now it's not necessarily as clear um, because a lot of Trump voters are people who do not vote very often, but they were very excited by Trump um, and are often working class or lower middle class, right? Um, do not vote in midterm elections necessarily or special elections, right? And so it's like not so clear anymore kind of um, who benefits from higher turnout. You know, again, normatively, I think that like I am with you. I, I am sympathetic to the idea of voter ID laws, but I think you should make it easy to vote and have multiple opportunities to vote. And it should be, you know, should be easy as going to the pharmacy and getting a prescription filled or something like that. Right. It shouldn't, all that can actually be kind of pain. Yes. Sometimes, but like, you know what I mean? Like, I, I think like, you know, don't erect barriers. You shouldn't have to wait in line for three hours or even one hour to vote, right? Um, but voter ID, I can understand. I I think I mostly am on board with that. But like, but like, I don't know. Um, to have like voting itself be a partisan cage match is also is also quite bad, right? And the I think the intent sometimes for the GOP is to discriminate against um, against black voters in particular. You know, I think that needs to be part of the conversation on this. Um, at the same time, I think. The most immediate threat is from the idea that you have an election, people vote, and the result is not respected. Um, to me, that is like the threat that could um, could tear the country apart I, and is like a tangible, tangible risk. I feel like it used to be the way that politics was, people would show up at, at, at a boxing ring and then they'd get in the ring and they'd They'd agree to fight. They'd fight. Some would win, then they'd leave. And that was a good fight. We're all people now. Now it feels every. It, it's like Vietnam now. It's it's every everywhere you go. There's a fight. People are jumping out of bushes. Every story, every day is getting hijacked, and people just honestly hate the, the other side. And it, it's starting to feel more and more that this is just kind of seeping into every aspect of society instead of just simply being the the match itself. Um, 
Anyway, Nate, uh, that that's that's all I got for you here today, man. Any 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 parting thoughts? Any any uh, upcoming? Oh yeah, we never actually answered. What's your WSP schedule? What what are you playing this summer or this fall? It's weird to say that this fall. So um, I'm coming in on like October third and leaving November or whenever I bust out of the main event or win the main event. Oh. So I'm going to be playing most of the grind. Probably take a break in there at some point. But like, yeah, I'm going to be doing uh, you know, doing like four weeks of grind. It's going to be fun. I think. Wow, that's serious. That's a serious schedule. Is there anywhere people can can follow along on uh, what what you're what you're doing? How you're I mean, doing? I should maybe have like a alt like poker account or something that I should start or something maybe um, where like only people like I actually like follow it or I don't know. Um, yeah, maybe I'll start like because I don't think I want to like populate the main. You- I think it's also like I don't also want to like give like it's like very bad. I, I see yeah, how it is, Nate. You, you, uh, you don't want to, You don't want to let all your all your followers know about us in the poker world. No, we get it. We understand. No, no, no. no but I had no, like no, some, no, 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 no. Because I'm trying to pull it up, right? So I had some event, some WT event, uh, the 5K or what was it? Where like I was like the chip leader after day one B or something, and like you have to like retweet the WT because like you're trying to like promote your book and your kind of brand association with like poker and stuff like that, right? But like um, being the chip leader. Um, and people knowing about it, I think it does affect your play a little bit, right? Um, I think it made me like a little bit more nitty on day two where I'm like, well, I at least have to like kind of like get some type of decent cash, right? My parents, by the way, they like read that I had like 480,000 chips, right? And I'm like, so you had $480,000 and you only wound up with $9,000 for 99th place or whatever. I'm like, no, I never had, no, no, I no, I had $0, right? <laughs> Um, so they were kind of, they were surprised by how much I blew all my money so quickly. Um, but no, so I'll, I'll try to find a balance between like kind of, um, having some fun, like poker and Vegas related anecdotes, but probably not giving people like chip counts and stuff like that. Okay. Well, sounds good. Well, th- thank you for coming on today and thank you guys for tuning in for today's podcast. We're going to be joined on Thursday by Brian Mycon, founder of Seals with Clubs, should be a good one. And then Norman Chad, tentatively scheduled for Friday as well. So make sure you guys tune in to see that. That's going to be it. That's a wrap here. Thanks for tuning in.